VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone or give us a shout and in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you've heard mentioned in the newscast, the Women's World Cup of Soccer, the finals all set for Sunday. That's England versus Spain. I think I'm going to tune in for that particular match. Nice matchup. And this story here... Never really quite sure how to tackle some of these issues. And I'm in no mood, nor do I ever want to disparage or to demonize any individual or segments of society. But it's a conversation that's growing, and it's getting some traction. Some of it quite nasty, but some of it realistic. And this is about trans athletes. Okay. So there's a woman named, a trans powerlifter named Anne Andres, won first place in the female Masters unequipped category at the Western Canadian Powerlifting and Bench Press Championships. Unequipped basically just means no support, no squat suit, is what they call classic or raw lifting. She transitioned some 20 years ago. There's been some adjustment made to some of the sports authorities, the overseeing bodies, about trans athletes. Uh, Anne transitioned 20 years ago, but never started weightlifting until some seven years ago. And she says quite clearly that this is not about my 20-year past. This is about my effort today. Okay, so whether we see that some of the sports bodies have uh, put forward recommendations, rules, regulations, accommodations for people, how they self-identify, what we never hear in these stories is beyond what the organizations have done, and it's in line with what the Canadian Centre of Ethics and Sports says, exclusively funded by the federal government, but we don't hear from the competitors. So I don't think it's going to be any such thing as commonplace where someone transitions simply so they can compete in women's sports as someone who was born as a man and consequently hold all the world records and win all the titles and the gold medals and the championships and the lots. So how does, how does this conversation take place in some sort of reasonable fashion? Because most of the conversation regarding anything regarding LGBTQ has been really quite something, and in some cases, quite disgraceful. But how do we talk about these issues and get down to brass tacks, whether it be based on fairness or what you think should be applied here, how the governing bodies of di different sports should handle this issue? But it would be important, I think, when these news stories, if we carry some commentary coming from fellow competitors. You know, it's one thing for the general public who are not involved in any of these sports at any sort of high level to have your thoughts and your opinions are welcome if you'd like to share them on the program. But how do we have a, a realistic, adult, mature conversation about this? It's tricky to navigate, and we're talking about a very vulnerable segment of society. So for fellow competitors, what do they think? What do they have to say? That's something that's generally lost in the shuffle, and I was torn as to whether or not to even broach it this morning, but there you go. Can't be afraid of the tricky societal issues. Try to navigate them as best possible. If you'd like to take that on from any angle, you can do it. All right, back to other issues on the ground. Price of gas up. So the price of a barrel of oil. You know, I think there's a lot of confusion, and I don't pretend to understand the direct or indirect or the correlation with the price of a barrel of oil and the spec market and supply and demand regarding refined products like gasoline. It's not a straight line, but, of course, there's some relationship. Maybe, just maybe, someone who really understands it. I know a couple of people that we can go to to give us that explainer again because it does get confusing. 
price of barrel of oil yesterday, Brent crude, went up about seven cents. But the price of gas overnight went up almost that same amount, 6.6 cents. Now I know that it takes a, it's a lag between producing a barrel of oil and refining a liter of gas. But the issue is very real when you go to the pump. So the average price of a liter of gasoline on the Avalon, about $1.92, right back up against that $2 mark. Uh, when we're talking about Labrador, you can pay over 2 bucks, 2.13 in parts of Labrador. Diesel up 3.1 cents. Jumped 6.8 cents in Labrador West and Churchill Falls, so it's between $2.11 per liter. Diesel prices now on the in Labrador, pardon me, upwards of $2.42 per liter. Furnace oil, stove oil went up about 2.7 cents each. Propane always seems to be mo the most stable, less than a cent adjustment. That was an increase as well, what was it, 0.7 cents of a liter. Okay. We talk a lot about housing, and it's not going away, and there's really got to be some better political conversation about housing. And even if we're just talking about affordable rent, and I know people couldn't care less about how much it costs to rent an apartment in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal because we live here. But I think it's indicative of what's happening in some of the conversations surrounding rent, possible controls, vacancy control, rent control, what have you. In the downtown east side of Vancouver, there's a, an advertisement out there for an apartment for rent that's drawing some pretty heavy criticism. This was the Lotus Hotel, formerly home to many of the poorest residents in that part of Vancouver. Now they've got a $2,000 per month rental unit for an apartment this size, 200 square feet. 200 square feet. There's people with bathrooms in their house that are around 200 square feet. Walking closets about 200 square feet. I mean, these are the muckety-mucks, but it's the reality. $2,000 a month for a 200 square foot apartment in the downtown uh, east side of Vancouver. Why I'm bringing it up, though, is because when we've had conversations about whether or not it can work or how it should work or what some of the problems associated with rent control or vacancy control, in British Columbia, the city went to the Supreme Court of the province to looking to institute vacancy controls in these SRO properties. SRO is a single room offering hotel. And the Supreme Court shot them down. So we really are at a logjam here where we don't have much in the way of federal guidance. A lot of the promises that the feds have made on the housing front have not come to pass, certainly not as of yet. Then you'll, th you know, I hate the buzzwords that politicians use, uh, just riling people up, the gatekeepers or what have you, but the conversations around housing, even if we just look strictly at this province, if the vacancy rate is around 3%, and yes, when people are unable to qualify for mortgages based on interest rate and the threshold that they have to meet, and then you talk about the fact that if I'm a landlord and the mortgage rates have gone up because of interest rates, of course, I'm going to increase my rate to keep up with the costs and maybe not jeopardize whatever associated quote-unquote profit comes from being a landlord. But the conversation has just kind of fizzled. You know, does anybody have any real ideas? We've seen some pockets of money come to this uh, neck of the woods for about 1,500 affordable units. We can't get a status update as to where they are, how many have been built, or how, what the progress looks like inside that world of 1,500, but there you go. You want to take it on? And for folks who have, you know, pensioners in particular, if you have a room to rent, there might be an opportunity to deal with the uh, Mr. Belvin at Memorial University for an international student. Now, it's not to say, please go do it. It's there's got to be all of the process uh, attached to vetting and arrangements and agreements regarding the cost of renting your room, maybe in exchange for some household duties or what have you, to know who that student is, where they came from, all the things that people would practically and legitimately want to ask, but one's putting that plea back out there if you want to take it on. All right.
and again overnight lots of emails about the healthy food program at the hospital you know I think at a starting point people understand healthy options in healthcare settings totally get it now the policy does not mean that you can't bring in whatever you want for whether it be a staffer in your bag lunch or a visitor to a patient so that's going to continue but I do think there are legitimate concerns about how the, uh, the program was come was designed like for instance we spoke with Paul Toomey at the Eating Disorder Foundation. We've spoken with nutritionists about, not about blacklisting, but about balance and information. The health authority says that, of course, it's all based on Canada's food guide. But there is something to be said for someone who's recovering or suffering for something that makes them feel good. And not to say you should sit in the bunk all day long with a steady diet of nothing but Timbits, but for like everybody out there. If you have adherence to your own personal health and what makes you feel good and a little bite of a caramel bar, you know, in the middle of the afternoon while you're watching the story, these are not bad things. Of course, we all have to be mindful to moderate what we consume on every front, whether it be from alcohol to food. But it's not being very well received. And it's a three-phase or three-pronged approach. So when we get to 2025, there will be very little what the health authority has deemed to be unhealthy. Now, the options are already limited at the hospitals, but at this point, you also have to incorporate the thought of how much things cost. So if the th school of thought is that everything that's so-called more healthy than not is more expensive than the, those items or products that are less than healthy or less than ideal for your overall health, so that's something that we can take on again today if you are so inclined. Okay, this story here is really quite something. And it, I first read it when it was brought forward by Sarah Smellian. Uh, she's written for The Independent, and this one's for the Canadian press. And we look at just how jam-packed the hospitals are, and the backlogs, and the wait times in emergency rooms. And the, she focuses, focuses in on one specific area. And this is what they call community emergencies, or social admissions. Basically, without a real deep understanding of it, we'll just scratch the surface here today as we try to figure it out a little bit more clearer. So what's happening? is that people who are possibly in a long-term care home or a personal care home, but those settings are unable to keep up with or unable to manage an individual based on one factor or another. One of the stories begins with someone who has Alzheimer's. And so what's happening is if these homes say that they can't handle this person, they send them to the hospital. So that has a distinct impact on the emergency rooms, has an absolute distinct impact on how many beds are occupied by someone who legitimately does not qualify for the admission criteria but finds himself in a hospital bed in the hospital because the home that they were living in just can't handle them. So the impact numbers are really quite stark. So when the provinces are trying to track what they call alternative levels of care, you might need emergency care, but when you arrive at the hospital, you get the required emergency care, but with nowhere to send you, you end up in the hospital being admitted. You wonder what that percentage looks like. There's no real clear data in the very recent past, but they did track it over the course of, say, April the 1st, 2022, to March the 7th of 2023. In Eastern Health, officials logged 151 community emergencies. So that impact is very real. It's an interesting facet of healthcare that I haven't given much consideration to, but it's something that we've got to understand a little clearer. In addition to that, while we wait for the review of the long-term care and personal care homes, it's about time that that gets released. You know, they've been working on it for quite some time, and I know it's a complicated issue that requires the due diligence to look at all of the angles of care from staffing levels all the way down through restraints and antipsychotic drugs and all the rest. 
But how many people, once again, are in the hospital who legitimately belong in a long-term care facility? How many beds are empty in a long care facility? How many of the applicants for those vacant beds, because of staffing shortages, are not at home? They're in the hospital. So getting it right in long-term care can really ease the backlog for surgeries and procedures and emergency room visits because of all these all of these different factors that play a role in those long lists. It's about time we figured out a little care, but we would like to see that long-term care review sooner than later. It was promised in October 2022. They struck into a committee in February of this month, February of this year, pardon me. So I think it's time, and hopefully that uh, report is in hand on the minister's desk, and then hopefully publicly in full release so that we can all understand what's happening. Anyway, there we go. One angle on going back to school. First day of school is on the 6th of September. You know, as the husband of a teacher, I can tell you in no uncertain terms that teachers absolutely have been contributing financially to their classrooms. And I don't begrudge it. Hey, you know, we're, um, we're not talking huge sums, but frequently enough that they add up over the course of a school year. And we know demand is up and donations are down. But one angle I don't think gets much consideration is, can you imagine having to be a teacher, trying to navigate? There's always been poverty represented in the classrooms and in the schools. But imagine having to navigate curriculum day by day to see whether or not you're able to do one exercise or another because of the lack of the basic necessities in the form of back-to-school supplies. Just imagine. You know, how difficult must that be? And it's no good for anybody in the classroom if the designed curriculum, purpose-driven curriculum, can't be fully executed because some of the children in the school or in the class simply don't have the materials to be involved, to execute the program, the uh, the event or the pardon me the the part of the design curriculum that would be to explore one facet of education or another. But if you don't have the materials, you can't participate. So consequently, the teacher says, "Well, we probably shouldn't do that." And again, I'm going to keep going on the chronic absenteeism because I think that number is absolutely staggering. Okay, how are we doing on the phone there, David? I had a few I wanted to get to here. Very quickly, the province is now talking about, in reaction to the most recent number of opioid overdose deaths, to expand addiction services here for adults in particular. Curiously, it was on this date in history, 1953, that Narcotics Anonymous held its first meeting in Southern California. Now, there are a real set of shortcomings when we talk about adult treatment for addictions. There's only two adult uh, treatment facilities in the province. There's an average of a six-week assessment required for services, say, for instance, at Humberwood. So they're looking at ways to reduce that six-week assessment. Currently, the capacity at Humberwood is over 90%, so we all understand there's got to be a change in the way the province evaluates that, and away we go. All right, a couple of very quick ones before we get to your calls. The when the government entertained the most expensive procurement process in our history regarding uh, Canadian warships, so started to replace the Halifax-class vessels back when the Conservatives were in government, costs start to spiral, and now, I think unfortunately, when the contract was let in 2011 to Irving, it was very clear. One of the stipulations that was widely applauded at the time that said there would be no public money given to Irving to mo modernize their shipyard to be able to build the ships as let, as described in the contract. And yet, lo and behold, just now, the federal Liberal government has given the Irving Shipyard $463 million of taxpayer money. So obviously that screams out loud that regardless of the cost, it's full steam ahead on building these new warships. When we listen to the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, critically important office, 
the original estimate for this program, $26 billion, now all the way to $84.5 billion. In a recent cost update last October, Giroux talked about the entire life, cy life cycle cost for the ships. The total, $306 billion. A huge leap. Back in 2013, that figure was $64 billion over 30 years, now $306 billion. But most importantly is that additional almost a half a billion dollars for the Irvings, who will make a profit on this program, modernize their shipyard for further future contracts. We were told in the contract there would be no additional monies. Construction of the first new warship scheduled to start next year. Last vessel to be delivered in 2050. So the Irvings making out like bandits on this one. All right. Don't sue me. And, you know, inside that world of defense spending, you know, there's been lots of clamoring for Canada, among certain corners of the country, to live up to its 2% of GDP commitment for NATO on defense spending. Currently, we are not at that level. Let's see the most recent numbers. I pulled it up earlier this morning. So it's about 1.27%. Nowhere near the 2 but there's got to be a way to kind of change our minds about what constitutes defense spending. Certainly, in modern-day warfare, wouldn't cybersecurity be part of it? I mean, it's not like it hasn't happened or anything. We've had a pipeline in the United States that was hacked into, taken full control by hackers. So between pipelines and uh, electric le electricity grids, uh, water treatment facilities, can we not expand beyond warships and tanks to actual things that are much more likely than not, and that would be cybersecurity? The annual defense budget in this country is somewhere in the neighborhood of $36 billion in 2023. So that's a big one. I want to talk about Stephen Gibo and oil, but I'll save that for a bit. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show that requires your participation. We're going to start off with Bridget Clark. She's at the St. John's Status of Women Council. as She's an advocacy coordinator. Talk about harm reduction programs offered by that organization. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two and say good morning to an advocacy coordinator at the St. John's Status of Women Council. That's Bridget Clark. And good morning, Bridget. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We had a call yesterday from a lady who's suffering with an alcohol addiction and looking for assistance, looking for help, not having much luck with it, certainly not in a timely fashion. But harm reduction outreach is a big part of what you folks do at the SJSWC. So what exactly is offered in the Managed Alcohol Program? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. So the Managed Alcohol Program, otherwise known as MAP, you'll often hear people refer to it as that, just the acronym. It's the first and only of its kind in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's really a program that's focused on harm reduction and the way we operate it based on our mandate, of course, is for women and non-binary people who drink um, and really have a chronic alcohol use. So the way that we approach it is that we know that abstinence is, is certainly not a model that works for everybody. We want all kinds of different options to be available for people who drink or who have, use other substances. Um, so this is one model that offers... Um, um, kind of a regular, reliable source and supply of alcohol to people who have chronic alcohol use. It's delivered from a trauma-informed approach, and it's meant for people who want to decrease their harms and barriers associated with chronic, chronic alcohol use, but not necessarily want to um, decrease their consumption overall or, or even work towards abstinence. It's meant for people to really reduce harms that um, they experience in their life if they've got any safety concerns related to how they act their alcohol or how they consume it. 
So when people think of these managed type programs, they will immediately think about rehab as they in the traditional sense. So a couple of days of, I hate to use these just very lay terms, but a couple of days of drying out and then in for 30 months on the way to becoming clean and sober. How does this look differently? Like, is there a formal pathway to becoming clean and sober or is it simply a management program? I mean, I think it is, if you if, if I was to choose between the two, it is a management program, but the great thing about it is that it's entirely self-directed, um, and it's working closely with a healthcare team that, of course, you know, helps support people's kind of daily dosing and prescription based on their healthcare needs, but really it's self-directed and self-determined, so if people do want to work towards accessing rehab, if they do want to work towards decreasing the amount that they um, drink or other substances that they consume with drinking, then that's something that we support them with as well. Um, and we know about, um, what we know about life in general, and that includes all of us, is that our trajectory is not linear. And so if we're looking at um, recovery, which is, you know, a really big word and can mean a lot more things than kind of the traditional direction of recovery that we often think of, is that that's not linear either. Um, and we know that there's so much value that people who use substances, including drinking, um, so much value in reducing any kind of harms that people experience, that we experience um, whether or not we access rehab, whether or not we kind of dry out or sober up, like you said. How do you measure success? Because if I went to Humberwood, for instance, I would be a successful resident if I left clean and sober, even though you will continue to have to work on that quite hard over the course of your life, possibly if you become an addict. So how do you measure success? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think that depending on what people's perceptions and real experiences of risk and safety are, that if they are experiencing fewer risks and harms in their life related to their alcohol use or just in general, that that is inherently successful. The way that we operate our program too, like I said, it is a gendered program because our organization is gendered in a lot of ways. Um, and we know that that's a really kind of a deficit in the big picture, the landscape of harm reduction services. And we know that women and non-binary people, people of marginalized genders in general experience unique harms related to alcohol consumption. So we know that healthcare is related to that because there's not um, equity. You know, we know this for, for so many people listening. There's not equity right now um, or, or maybe ever in terms of accessing healthcare, but that's especially true for women and non-binary people in the way that they seek treatment. They can experience a lot of barriers. There's also underreporting of health concerns and substance use. There's often shame and stigma. You know, we know all these things. There's also for people who are non-binary and people who are trans lack of gender affirming healthcare that's available. So I think that if we can increase people's access to healthcare through this program, through that really essential partnership, um, but also reduce other harms that they might be experiencing that could be related to gender-based violence, it could be related to their housing stability, um, it might be around control over other basic needs that they're struggling to meet. Those are all measures of success that, that we look at. Um, and what's really important, the way that we look at measuring su success is that it's not up to us. Um, what success or safety looks like for somebody else, but, but folks tell us what they need and what that looks like. Bridget, how about harm reduction policies or programs associated with drug use? Mo most importantly, you know, illicit drugs, opiates and the like. What do you mean? Tell me. What do you, what no, do you look, I mean, I know you have the managed alcohol program, as you've described here this morning. Yeah. Do you offer any harm reduction policies or programs regarding drug use? Because it has a distinct overlap with alcohol consumption or alcoholism, 
but it's different in that you know unregulated supply you never know what you're getting as opposed to you do you know exactly what you're getting when you go to the liquor store so any harm reduction programs available for narcotics yeah so we do partner with a local um, na group who comes and uses our space and that's again for women and non-binary people we don't run it but we're very happy to offer them space um, we also have policies that kind of reach across the organization in different ways where people don't necessarily have to be sober or well to live in our housing program to access our programming of course there's a lot of nuance in there around um, what people can consent to depending on their sobriety but in general people are not excluded um, or you know kicked out depending on their sobriety or their wellness we also offer um, a swap satellite site here between the women's center and marguerite's place you know we we know so much about our wonderful community partners at swap and they've been doing a lot of great media work so more people probably have been hearing from them um, more than ever but they offer um, new injection and inhalation supplies for people who use drugs as well as different kinds of testing and really importantly naloxone kits so we carry all those supplies here and we offer them through kind of a unique mailbox model which means that you can come into the center um, Monday to Friday while we're open to kind of get custom kits whatever you're looking for but also we offer all of those supplies pre-packaged in a mailbox that are restocked kind of around the clock as well as um, on weekends so that people can access them even when the women's centers close. So so we do harm reduction in a lot of different ways. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Bridget. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bridget Clark is an advocacy coordinator at the St. John's Status of Women Council. Okay, before we get to the break, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Leo O'Brien, who's with the last post fund, Newfoundland and Labrador. Good morning, Leo. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better, sir. How about you? Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Tell us about what you have coming up. A, a, a veteran service recognizing a past soldier. Yes, uh, Patty. On, on Monday at 11 a.m. at the Belvedere Cemetery, uh, the last post fund will be having a, uh, a vet, what we call a veteran service recognition ceremony. And this one is... Uh, the one of the first, actually, we've been doing them uh, last summer and all, all of this summer, for, mainly for veterans who are buried in family plots who have no mention of uh, military service on their headstones. So what the last post fund has been doing is that having those veteran service recognition ceremonies and uh, having we invite the family along and we have about a 30-minute program where we where we have whole Canada you know to play the last post and that we have the the piper who played the lament and then we do the act of remembrance and a biography we say some prayers we lay a wreath and then we place a poppy with the word veteran written across it on the uh, on the gravesite so but on monday uh, of course the mission of you know the last post fund it's our mission is to we're a national organization not profit not for profit uh, the charitable we uh, we, our mission is to ensure that no veteran is denied a dignified burial, funeral or burial, as well as a military gravestone due to insufficient funds. But on Monday, uh, coming the, tw- the 21st, we have a veteran service recognition ceremony at the Belvedere Cemetery at 11 o'clock, and we're going to be uh, recognizing uh, someone who's been should have been long recognized year, years ago, but Sergeant Joseph Corbett of the Newfoundland Constabulary. Uh, Sergeant Corbett was born in 1845. He joined the Newfoundland Constabulary in 1871. 
and served for 40-some years. Uh, he passed away in 1914, and unfortunately, he lies in the Belvedere Cemetery but never did have a tombstone. So the last post fund uh, took it upon themselves to uh, make application to uh, the, our national organization. And we, what we put forward was that during World War One and World War Two, uh, the Newfoundland Constabulary served as the own defense. And, of course, they were the National Police Force there in Newfoundland at the time, right? So they enforced the War Measures Act, which was passed in 1914. They did a lot of things, actually. They manned the coastal battery, uh, batteries. They arrested foreign vessels for enemy origin. They detained and guarded uh, foreign nationals. They investigated espionage and charges of treason, as well as conducted surveillance for enemy shipping in Newfoundland and Labrador at the time. So these are, these were activities were, again, repeated in World War, during World War II. And, of course, uh, Sergeant Corbett was a member of the Newfoundland Constabulary during this time. So we made application to the uh, last post fund to have the Newfoundland Constabulary recognized as veterans and uh, uh, <clears throat> because of the fact that they enforced the War Measures Act and actually uh, recently the last post fund has recognized the wartime service of the Newfoundland Constabulary and deemed them to be eligible for the Unmarked Grave Program. So where Sergeant Corbett laid in on our grave, uh, we're we're in the process now. Uh, we will uh, either today or tomorrow. We should have his tombstone erected. So on uh, Monday, uh, we're having a veteran service recognition ceremony for uh, for Sergeant Corbett at the Belvedere Cemetery. I appreciate what you do at the last post fund, and thank you for bringing up the uh, the conversation surrounding uh, Sergeant Corbett here this morning. Good to have you on, Leo. Good luck with the uh, event. Yes, and I just want to say to anyone out there that may be listening, if you know of any veteran in our province, uh, because we're out there all the time looking for unmarked graves, and matter of fact, this summer we have a summer student hired, and that's what he's doing under the Canada Summer Job Program. And he's out there every day going around to cemeteries uh, looking for Amar graves. We know they're out there, but they're difficult to find, very difficult to find, uh, because, you know, we're talking about years, and it takes a lot, a lot of research. So if anyone out there may be listening, if you may know of a relative, uh, of a friend, or anyone who uh, was a, a war veteran and is, is lying in an Amar grave without a tombstone, please get in contact with us. Uh, you, all you got to do is go to our website, Last Post Fund, and uh, you'll, you'll be able to find us there. And, uh, yeah, I'm the president here for Newfoundland Labrador, and I have a number of other people around the province who serve on the executive. So it's very rewarding, Pat, uh, you know, that if you can find an Armour grave, and we have been successful in finding a few. And like such Sergeant Pat. Matty Corbett, the, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Corbett, rather, who served our province for a number of years. So it's, it's very grateful to be able to get out and, and recognize him and to play, place a tombstone on his grave that's been without a tombstone for so many years. I appreciate the time, Leo. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Betty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye Leo O'Brien is the president of the Last Post Fund. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be saying uh, good morning and have a conversation with the Conservative Member of Parliament elected in and serving the folks of Calgary Forest Lawn. He's the Shadow Minister for Finance and Middle Class Prosperity. That's Josh Raj Hallin. right after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. 
Welcome back to the programme. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the Conservative Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of Calgary Forest Lawn. He's the Shadow Minister of Finance and Middle Class Prosperity. That's Josh Raj Hallen. Good morning, Mr. Hallen. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me today. Happy to have you on the program, sir. So we didn't indeed receive a request from your office about coming on to talk about cost of living numbers, and they break it down. We all are familiar with them. Groceries and gas and housing and inflation and all the rest. Let's start with groceries, because no matter your political ideology, we all have to eat. I know the tax the tax has been a big part of the campaign being forged by Mr. Poliev, but what percentage of the price increase in the grocery stores or the 8 whatever, 8.5% food inflation is attributed to additional taxes like carbon tax. Do you guys have that broken down? Yeah, definitely. So uh, this carbon tax, which, by the way, uh, the the government sold as, uh, and it's not as advertised, because first they sold the carbon tax as something that would help lower their emissions or Canada's emissions and help them meet the um, uh, environmental targets that the Liberals set for themselves. We know both of those things are false because emissions have been going up. And on top of that, they haven't met a single emission reduction target that they set for themselves. So, and on top of all that, the carbon tax has made the cost of gas, groceries, and home heating much more expensive. And just recently, we found out um, that out of the food inflation, the food, uh, the food inflation, especially inside of Newfoundland, about 3.6% uh, of the increase is attributed to the carbon tax one and two because on july the first they implemented a second carbon tax a clean fuel standard and once again this is not an environmental plan the carbon tax this is a tax plan which is all pain and no gain for canadians and it's made life even more expensive for some Canadians, the of course, the carbon tax rebate or the climate action rebate fund will cover some of the additional costs, but that's after the fact, after you've already spent the money associated with the carbon tax. Have you broken down population growth and emissions? Because there's, when the population grows, inevitably carbon emissions will as well. So has that been factored into your calculation? Well, at the end of the day, the government had set targets for themselves, and we know that emissions are going up because... Those numbers are very clear to see. And uh, that's, the, that's the other part of the scam that you identified. They had sold it that Canadians will get more back in their pocket than what they pay into this carbon tax. And the Liberals' own appointed uh, parliamentary budgeting officer proved that to be wrong. And if I look at Newfoundland, Newfoundland, once the carbon tax is tripled, on average, more, more Newfoundlanders will be paying about roughly... $1,900 each household into the carbon tax scam than what they get back. So that was a falsehood that they sold before as well. And it's their own public budgeting officer that has been proving them wrong. And again, this is a tax plan. It's made nothing, nothing has be, has, uh, getting cheaper. The Conservatives will axe this failed carbon tax and get our resources to market so we can actually bring down the cost of resources. And, of course, the uh, tripling of the carbon tax, even though it's been implied that that's happening this year, that's over the course by the end of the decade if the current plan remains in place. So there's some confusion in some corners about what parties think what about whether it be carbon tax, a price on pollution, and climate change in general. In the last federal election, about two-thirds of Canadians voted for a party with a price on pollution. This is the very fundamental question, and I think there's some confusion out there. Does the Conservative Party of Canada believe climate change is real and man's role in increased emissions and greenhouse gas emissions? 
uh, is climate change real? Yes, yeah. it is. Is it and is it because of man's contribution versus natural cycles? Um, look, I mean, the the science is clear that it's a it's a mix of both. But if we look at if we look at what the Liberals' plan is today, it's just a tax plan. It's made life more expensive for everybody. The Conservatives have a plan. We were gonna we're gonna focus on technology and not taxes to help with climate change. What we need to do is we need to get more of our resources. We have rich resources right here in Canada underneath our feet. We need to get more produced, more low carbon energy, which is responsibly made right here in Canada, and we need to get that out to market. We just saw when the the Chancellor of Germany came here months ago, asking for our liquefied natural gas, and Justin Trudeau turned them around and said, sorry, we don't have a business case for that. They turned around and went to Qatar that has lower human rights standards, lower environmental standards on the product, and it's high carbon intense. And they went to them and got their product. Uh, product. On top of that, they built their own LNG port within 197 days. And this is the problem in Canada. Because of liberal and NDP regulations, burdens, and bad bills, not much can get built here. We need to be able to get our responsibly made energy low-carbon energy to the rest of the world to really help lower world emissions. And we can make good, strong Canadian paychecks and bring a strong strong Canadian economy back to Canada. And that will happen under a pure poly of government. When someone comes knocking for something like LNG and the federal government says things like, you know, there's no business case, but of course the federal government isn't in the business of producing LNG or oil or anything else under the sun. It's the private sector. So is there anything currently in front of the uh, Environmental Assessment Board regarding LNG? Because as best I can remember, sir, there was one approval given on the west coast of British Columbia, Kitimat, I believe. That approval's in place, but no construction has taken place. So where is the gap between uh, application approval and not building? Because like even with Equinor in our provinces offshore, green light was given by Minister Gibo, and yet the companies shelved the project based on cost. So what am I missing here that if, if there's already one approval for LNG, but no one's doing anything about it, why not? Well, there's only one person that's been gatekeeping all these projects, and that's Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau had more than 15 good LNG projects on his desk when he took over as prime minister. Only one is under construction in the, on the West Coast, and that isn't uh, being, uh, being completed yet. And it was only approved because it was exempt from the carbon tax. This is the regulations and the burdens that this government has put up. They've cancelled many pipelines. And because of the bad bill, Bill C-69, which is the no-new pipeline bill, also is stopping infrastructure from being built. Canada is 64th when it comes to permitting for anything being built in this country. And because of those regulations and bad liberal bills, not much is being produced here. My province of Alberta, there was a good project back before the pandemic, and it was was supposed to bring 8,000 good jobs. Of course, the company pulled out of it, but they said it's because of all the rules and regulations. The goalposts continue to be moved for them over 20 years. We need to get these government gatekeepers out of the way. The Liberals cannot get anything built in this country. We need to get more built, more produced, so the world can get more of our responsibly made resources. So is the pipeline you're talking about the Energy East project, or are you talking about Keystone, or what was that reference? All of, all of those... So Energy East was cancelled, Northern Gateway was cancelled, KXL was cancelled, and, and 
Justin Trudeau knew it would be cancelled once President Biden got in, and he did nothing to stand up for that project. What we need is a, a government that actually realizes that our resources are low carbon, that we can get that to product, uh, get that our product to market. We need to bring home strong Canadian paychecks for our people. And, and former Premier Kenny spent about a billion dollars on a pipeline that was very likely going to be in jeopardy with a change in administration in Washington. In Bill, Bill 69, is that more about where pipelines land on the West Coast as opposed to you can't build them? Because we've got, unfortunately, about a $30 billion pipeline that's under construction at this point. So isn't Bill 69 more accurately depicted as where the pipeline lands on the Pacific West Coast because what it was, the concern was in the shipping lanes, you know, much further north that would have been the massive concern because it's going to land further south than was originally designed. So is it more about where it lands versus not allowed to build a pipeline because we're actually building one? Well, let's take a look at that. The government bought a pipeline and the the a cost on it, first they said it would be about 4 to $5 billion and it's skyrocketed to $30 billion. This, this incompetent government that in the first place we should not have bought that pipeline it should have been private industry that kept that pipeline but the company that had it kinder morgan because of the bad rules and regulations under the civil government got up and moved and built pipelines in texas so all these our investment is flowing out of canada we're not getting enough built here the government bought a pipeline and and it's not even complete yet and it's way over budget and it's on taxpayers heads if they were to sell it today, it would be a major loss on the on the heads of taxpayers. We need to have better growth. We need to have more more of our economy going in, in Canada. Today, under Justin Trudeau, and it's admitted in their own budget, Canada's growth rate is going to be the worst in all developed nations. And the more and more industry that we talk to, people don't want to invest in Canada because of one, all the government regulations and and economic uncertainty. Those things were brought on by the government. Bill C-69 is a bad bill. It stopped from pipelines getting built and key infrastructure from getting built as well. And the other bill that they brought in was Bill C-48, which stops tank tankers from taking our product from the West Coast and taking it out to the rest of the world. We can get our product to the West Coast, but it just can't go anywhere after that. We need to bring back a better economy, we need to build, build, build in this country. And when we talk about build as well, we also look at the housing crisis. When Canada's 64th in permitting, that's not a good thing. We have a major housing crisis in this country. And I, I do want to get to housing, but I do want to just wrap up some of the uh, oil-related matters. So wasn't the issue with Kinder Morgan that there was a court challenge that sent it back to consultations, whether it be communities and or indigenous communities, and the consultations that did not take place weren't anything to do with the Liberals. They were all things that were put on paper by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, right? Uh, well, if you look at Bill 69, C-69, it's made the consultation process basically impossible for anyone to build anything. The project I talked about in Alberta, the goalposts moved consistently. Whenever the company would meet the regulations, the government would move the goalposts. And eventually, they stopped because of all the how much money they had to pour into it. Nothing is being built properly here in Canada today. And there were many, many projects on Justin Trudeau's table when he took over. Nothing is getting built here. We need to have, we need to have these regulations finished. We need to have the carbon acts, the carbon tax, so that more and more can get built here in Canada. Okay. These regulations are, are, 
are very detrimental to our economy. When, okay, axe the tax, and the role of the opposition is critically important in holding government to account. I'll say that much as I lead into axing the tax and going to, you know, innovation and technology and carbon capture and carbon storage, and they're not all created equal either. So when you talk about technologies, what different proposals are going to come from your party? You know, is it going to be different than tax credits for clean tech and all those things that were just part of the most recent federal budget? But if not, what specific technologies are you talking about to control emissions? Well, industry knows best how to, how to do all of that. I have a, uh, But industry is only going to do if they're told to do it. Um, not necessarily. Uh, the, the industry knows that they need to, need to bring down <clears throat> excuse me, their emissions. They know themselves. We've seen that when, when they transfer from gas power vehicles to electric uh, power vehicles as well. Industry knows which way to go. What they need is the government to get out of their way so more innovation can take place. Today, research and development is down in Canada. Investment is down in Canada because nothing is getting made and produced here. We can, we can definitely make, bring down emissions. Our, our world-leading uh, energy producers here in Canada, especially in Alberta and, and out on the East Coast, know what they're doing. They can, they can not only make responsible products, but we can get it out to the world to help lower world emissions. We need to have uh, the government get out of the way in order for that to happen, though. Investment in Canada is going to be tricky business when competing with the Americans, specifically about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is very attractive to business, and Canadian businesses are looking very squarely directly at that, which is why I guess some of the thought behind the electric vehicle plant in Ontario and all the tax credits uh, that will be associated with it. But I do want to move on to a couple of things. In the world of housing, housing is a national issue here, but there's constant references to things like gatekeepers. Basically, it's up to municipalities and provinces with how housing developments go. Are you saying that if the Conservatives uh, win a majority in the federal government, that they will be dictating to the provinces and municipalities about housing? Well, let's look, take a look at the housing crisis first in Canada. We have a Liberal government who doesn't admit that there is a housing crisis in Canada. Their former housing minister refused to say that there is a housing crisis. And we just saw Justin Trudeau recently say that it's not, a fed, it's not one of his federal responsibilities. This is how out of touch this government is. Under Justin Trudeau, housing costs have doubled in the last eight years. Rents have doubled, mortgages have doubled because of his out of control deficits, and housing supply has gone down. But yet we are gonna have an influx of more people coming in. We need to get more built in this country. The Conservatives have a few plans to get more supply because this is a major supply issue. What we're gonna do is we're gonna tie in federal dollars with municipal dollars. Right now, Justin Trudeau is forking over millions and billions of dollars into municipalities that aren't getting projects completed. Like I said, Canada is 64th in permitting in the world. We need to make sure that those are streamlined. I come from the home building industry. I was a home builder before this. Regulations, red tape are a major burden. We need to incentivize municipalities to get their permits open and closed sufficiently so that we can get more built in this country. Second of all, we're going to convert 15% of federal land and buildings that are sitting empty right now, sell those off and convert those into units. We'll get more units into the market. That means people can get rentals and we can get more and more supply into the market. Third, what we're going to do is any federal um, tra- any federal transit, we want to build high density around there for our seniors, 
goals on low income, fixed incomes, or those with accessibility issues. So we can get more and more people around easily accessible transit as well. This is how we're going to, this is the conservative plan. And when we bring down the cost, get, get rid of the carbon tax, those are going to bring down some of those uh, building costs as well that we see are skyrocketing in this country as well. So I guess back to the question, is the federal government going to put all these rules, regulations, reduction of red tape, take it upon their authority versus where the jurisdiction lies right now with the municipalities and the province? Because cost sharing, sure, getting homes built, we need to build some 5.8 billion uh, million homes by 2035 if we're going to accommodate current population growth targets. So are you saying that the federal government will tell the provinces and municipalities what to do? Uh, well, we're going to incentivize. Like I said, we're going to give, we're going to reward with bonuses to those municipalities that are able to get 15% more bu- more uh, built, and we're going to uh, we're going to find those that don't. That's our incentive to the municipalities. Okay. A couple of very quick ones, sir, before we run out of time here. Yesterday, your leader, Mr. Poliev, who's very aggressively campaigning, I mean, a $3 million buy for his most recent television ad is not insignificant. So the campaign really feels like it's on, certainly on your side of the aisle, and I get it, because who knows when we're, we'll be going back to the ballot box. But a reporter asked the question about, you know, dog whistles, trying to bring into the voting base some who might be considered extreme on the right side of the political spectrum. He shoots it down by using CBC as a slur. So there's lots of things that people will breed into all of these things. Now, it might work there, it won't work here, but things like the World Economic Forum, that's a big go-to here, and there's lots of, I think, interesting conversation to be had. What's changed? Since 1971, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab have been in existence. During the former Harper government, Stephen Harper himself, many conservative cabinet ministers would go to the annual event in Davos. But now, all of a sudden, it's all boogeyman. What's changed here? Whether it be the whole thought about digital ID and you need to have one to get uh, uh, federal funding, which is just not true. It certainly hasn't happened. So what's changed with the World Economic Forum? Because that's a real catch-all for what people think are problems in the world, globalism and all the rest of it, because your party was once totally in, but now not. What's changed? Well, our leader has just made it clear that no minister under a pure poly of government would be able to go to a World Economic Forum. I think it's a very sound plan. But why is it why is it a sound plan? What's changed at the WEF to make this a requirement? Well, we know that these are elites that go there on these private jets and emit all these emissions to tell the rest of the world to not uh, pollute. And this is just like Justin Trudeau, who himself says. Maybe you guys should stay home and lower your emissions while he's jet-setting all around the world. Hypocrisy is one thing. But, I mean, that's a hypocrisy issue. That's not a World Economic Forum issue. We can tune out the elites, the self-important. They can blather on all they like. But what is it about the WEF that's changed? Because they've been doing that forever, since 1971. So why all of a sudden is it now the boogeyman in the corner? My question is specifically, what's changed? Not that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, let's let's be clear here, uh, Patty. Today... Canadians aren't looking for us to focus on these kind of issues. There's a major cost of living crisis, a housing crisis that Justin Trudeau caused in Canada. Canadians want us focused on bringing those, the the cost of living crisis and the housing crisis to an end. They want us to be focused on them. We We see food bank usage in the millions per month all across Canada. Those people are not worried about these issues. And when you talk about that reporter, if you look at if you look at the way the question was even posed, not once did she even source that question. And it's ridiculous to say 
that 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 Canadians would want us to be asking these kind of questions. We need to be focused on bringing down the cost of living. We have a plan for that. We want to bring home lower prices by axing the carbon tax, lowering people's taxes so they can bring home more powerful paychecks. And we need to bring home more affordable homes that people can actually get into and attain. Because if we look at 9 out of 10 young people and the newcomers that are coming to this country, don't see the dream of home ownership anymore. I came here as an immigrant to this country. This country, because of the opportunities it gave to me and my family, it gave us all the opportunity to be able to own a home, to run a business. Today, under Justin Trudeau, that dream is not possible. The Canadian dream is no more today. And we see that because we see more and more, uh, we see crime on the rise. We see overdoses on the rise. We see people not being able to get into the housing market. This isn't the Canada that, that me and my family came to. We need to bring that Canadian dream back. And under a clear poly of government, we will be able to bring that Canadian dream back. I appreciate the time this morning, Mr. Hallen. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. As Josh Raj Hallen, he's the member for Calgary, uh, Calgary Forest Lawn and the Shadow Minister of Finance. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's call line number one. Say good morning to Accessibility Advocate. That's Craig Reed. Morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. I hope the day finds you well. So far, so good. Thank you. Um... I just wanted to have a little chat. Last week I called to uh, let you know and again the, the public know about the $134 million in misappropriation of funds by our Liberal government. But uh, today I've got a couple questions about the actions of two ministers in particular. Uh, one would be John Abbott. Now, John Abbott, as CSSD minister, uh, came from the administration part of the disability community. Um told me many times as minister that uh, he's only got a certain amount of time in that portfolio, so he's trying to get done as much as he can uh, for the disability community. Um, well, two separate letters from the Premier um, told John Abbott to create the position of a disability advocate. Two separate years, John Abbott ignored that. Uh, to the point now where I can't think of a more uh, detrimental aspect to hit the disability community, the fact that we don't have proper representation, period, and the man who was tasked with doing it from the disability community failed. Um, so instead, what questions me or bothers me the most is how is he rewarded for this? Um, he's given a bigger portfolio, which begs to mind, was that the intention to begin with? Was the Liberal Party and our Premier saying something so that it can be read and then behind doors saying, slow walk this for God's sake because we don't want them having representation? That's all I can take away from it because when someone fails so miserably in a portfolio and is then given a bigger portfolio, that bears to mind some questions about the backdoor room and ethics of what's going on. Secondly... Um, would be Minister of Service I know, Sarah Studley. Now, back in on July 9th, well, before that actually, they were she was t the Building Accessibility Advisory Board was tasked with cleaning up the Buildings Act. They came back on July the 9th um, 
with recommendations supported by the Provincial Advisory Council for inclusion for the inclusion of persons with disabilities. And they made recommendations for the removal of the 1981 building exemption. Now, this had a phased out, phased in process where there was cost mitigation. Uh, all stakeholders had been interviewed and talked to during this process. Now, Minister Studley decided to slow walk it and do more public consultations. And I guess to her surprise, public consultations backed up what the Building Accessibility Advisory Board were saying. And in those public consultations, she had said that over a year ago, during a fall session, that this would be brought to the House. And sadly, nothing's been done on this aspect. Um, it seems that our government are more interested in the protection of politicians, past politicians, um, friends of politicians, campaign contributors, and all their assets versus actually doing what's required and needed for the province. Now, when you're given three green lights to do something and you fail to do it as a minister and you still remain in the portfolio, you had to go right to the top. And that's Andrew Fury and say, what are you doing when it comes to the disability community? They come up with all kinds of saying, nothing about us, without us, no one left behind. The whole disability community is being left behind. And not just them, but their families, Patty. 33 or 30% of our population has disabilities. This impacts their families where they can go. Right now, we can't access government services. There are more government services, money that every Newfoundlander and Labradorian has contributed to be able to access services, to pay for these services. Government are not paying for it. We are. Yet government fails to make these service, services accessible. So much so that right now there's a human rights complaint that I had to put in as well. When I was about our court system here in St. John's not being accessible. And the fact that if you have a mobile, a mobile disability, mobility disability, or a cognitive issue, or a vision issue, or anything, for example, if, if I'm called for jury duty, or anybody else with a mobility issue is called for jury duty, and the reality is you will be summarily dismissed from that position as a juror, not because of your inability to do the job, but because of a building's inability to provide you access. These are government services. I got a letter from Dale Kirby back years ago denying access to public libraries hiding behind a 1981 building exemption. This is a man who was a professor at Memorial University denying access public libraries. This has gone beyond what's decent for our province. This liberal government, our PC government before, have absolutely put the heels out from our disability community so that we don't have a leg to stand on. We can't climb anywhere to get above the edge of the cliff to build ourselves our own castles, which we have the capacity to do. Our government are ensuring someone's under the thumb, and it has to be the disability community. And it all comes down to protecting their finances, their friends, the campaign contributors, and all, all their assets.
Very quickly before I have to go, Craig, would the creation of a minister responsible for uh, accessibility, disability issues, would that even change much? Because sometimes creation of ministerial portfolios or different types of appointments, they have the optics address, but maybe not the reality. It would take a complete change in tune and philosophy for these these issues to be addressed to your satisfaction. So would even creating a minister a minister's job here really change much? A minister's job? No. A separate minister for accessibility? No. A disability advocate? That's independent from the government. Yeah. And that has the ability to do it. And they'll say, well, we were debating which is going to be uh, systemic or an individual. The office can actually hold both, and it'd be silly not to. Because when you're dealing with individual issues over a period of time and it becomes known and shows again and again and again and again that this is an issue, then it's a systemic issue. So you have to be able to deal with both at one time. Our government, John Abbott, has left that completely behind. We don't have a disability advocate. It's doubtful that we'll ever get one under a liberal government. And I want the disability community to be very aware of this. John Abbott, for two, two mandate letters, was tasked by our premier to create a disability advocate position. And he failed, failed or refused, I don't know. But in the end, he got a bigger job promotion. That's odd, isn't it? Well, I think the, a lot of government action is confusing, if not odd. Uh, Craig, I appreciate the time as usual this morning. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. It's Craig Reed, uh, advocate for the disability community. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the food service industry and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Chef Todd Perrin. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Best kind this morning. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. But, um, I was just, I just wanted to call in and have a little chat with you um, about uh, something I saw on socials uh, over the last couple of days. I I shared a post uh, that Restaurants Canada uh, put out um, you know, regarding... Uh, the cost of, of operating a restaurant, basically. And, and essentially what they put up was like a little, uh, almost like the nutritional information thing you see on the back of a, a can of food. It was kind of like, you know, uh, it was to, to highlight the level of profit in the average restaurant in Canada based on a $150 uh, food sale, um, which, you know, after they pulled out all the expenses, um, you know, the, the statistics that Restaurant Canada have, have gathered um, show that, you know, on a $150 bill in an average restaurant, there's a 75 cent profit uh, on that bill. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, everyone is, is sick and tired of hearing about uh, the challenges of, of restaurants and the tourism industry throughout COVID and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, I think the perspective uh, that, that, you know, that I'd like to put on it this morning at a time when, you know, we're all looking at these uh, SIBA loans that, uh, you know, pretty well, uh, I can't imagine there's a restaurant in Canada that didn't take the SIBA loan uh, through the, uh, the COVID period. Um, you know, based on the average statistics and the $60,000 SIBA loan, which I'm sure most of us are still holding on to, um, based on, you know, that wasn't in anyone's budget at the beginning of COVID. It's probably not really in anyone's budget now. Um, you're looking at a, at a 75 cent profit on a $150 bill, assuming that that SIBA loan is going to have to be paid from profit. You got to generate $12 million in sales to pay back your SIBA loan. Um, and, you know, for the average restaurant, you know, you're talking years and years and years and years of sales for that. So, you know, I think the the numbers are out of whack in food service and they have been for some time. COVID uh, obviously uh, put a, a, a microscope on that. Um, but, you know, I think it's important for uh, 
people to understand uh, how actually challenging this is and, and how the impact that it's going to have across the food service industry, uh, you know, in the coming months and years. Margins have always been obviously quite tight, but that's extraordinary. So just so I understand, the 75-cent profit is based on repayment schedule of a $60,000 EBA loan. Well, they, they, they put up a bill there, and I, I'd, I'd encourage anybody who's interested in food and restaurants to go find Restaurants Canada and on their socials. It's right there. Again, it's on a $150 bill. They want you to pull out, you know, utilities, payroll, food costs, blah, blah, blah. The average restaurant profits 75 cents. So that means it takes $15,000 in sales to generate $75 in profit. You know, so and, and again, we would assume that our SIBA loans, and well, I don't need to assume because I know it, there's no budget for SIBA loans, no restaurant put a budget in for SIBA loans, certainly not two years ago. So that's going to have to come from extra money, right? And that also assumes that you don't have an air conditioner breakdown. Like anything outside of regular maintenance, then obviously you've got a budget built in for. But, you know, if you have a windstorm and the corner of your roof comes off, or, you know, you're in your... Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I had a $1,000 repair on a piece of equipment that I had to do the other day. So for me to pay for that, that wasn't in the budget because it was an extraneous cost that we weren't expecting. So divide 75 into uh, a $1,000 bill extra, that's $150,000 in sales, $160,000 in sales to generate the extra money to pay for that extra bill. And that assumes that nothing else goes wrong while we generate at $150,000 in sales. So the numbers are actually bananas if you really want to kind of dig into it. Uh, and I will say this, not on your behalf, but just for context, it's not just restaurant owners that are talking about these issues. If I'm Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the food service industry is the fourth largest employer in the country. There's over a million Canadians working in food service industry. So if half of the restaurants in the country are somewhere around on the brink of failure or collapse, we're talking about potentially, if that half comes, 500,000 people out of work. So it's not just restaurant owners. This has a much bigger impact on the employment market, period. Oh, no, it's massive. And I think that, you know, the, the impact that, that food service and hospitality has on the economy, and you and I have had this conversation many, many times, is uh, underappreciated and, and not, not well understood uh, by the general public. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, listen, I don't know that there's anyone anyone can do. I think that, you know, the fellows like me and others, you know, the Restaurants Canada folks who have been big advocates for, for you know, obviously food service across Canada, and they represent everyone, Patty. They represent, you know, the biggest restaurant chains in the com- in the country and, you know, small little independent restaurants like ours. Um, so, you know, it's a very wide, cuts across the whole food service industry, you know, with the issues that they talk about. Um, you know, it's it's a ton of jobs. It's a ton of community fabric. And, you know, COVID changed a lot of things. COVID changed the relationships that people have with going to the office. COVID changed the relationships that people have, how they hang out with people. It changed a lot, and we all appreciate and accept that changes have, you know, happened in our society. Um, but I think that, you know, what, what I'll keep saying, and, and I don't know that there's anyone anything could, anyone can do about it, but it's important for people to appreciate that, you know, restaurants, small independent ones in particular, their place in our cities and our towns is tenuous at best. It was tenuous before COVID. Uh, it's certainly tenuous now. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, these things are not sustainable given the environment that is now created with inflation and food inflation and general costs and 
and whatnot. And these numbers are, uh, you know, a real tangible way to try to understand, um, you know, the challenges that we have. Because, you know, to generate $150,000 in sales in a restaurant, that takes a lot of work. And to come out the end of that with a $75 profit, if you do it perfectly, <laughs> you know, like that's literally basically like not one thing went wrong while you were generating that 150 grand. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, a, it, it, it's a big challenge. And I mean, I, I'm living it every day. But I mean, even seeing that, that graphic from Restaurants Canada really kind of focused my attention to it in a way that, uh, you know, it kind of made me look at it in a different way than I do already. And I mean, I, just, I deal, literally deal with it every minute of every day. So uh, it's important, I think, that people understand that that's all. Yeah, Restaurants Canada uh, talks about the contribution of the economy being around $100 billion per year. You know, and again, I haven't looked at it very recently. But talking about small business excise, taxes being reduced would be obviously very helpful. And one curious one uh, that I recall reading is, you know, for some restaurants of a certain scale uh, and price point, you know, it's the concept of the company credit card. And if the the meals were entirely a business deductible, then maybe just maybe some of those credit cards would be swiped a little bit more frequently at some of the medium to upscale restaurants in the country, which of course boost in business because solutions regarding co- input costs that you suffer, there's not really a government intervention available necessarily on that front. But overall operating costs regarding taxes and what could be uh, d- uh, deductibles, things like uh, cap on the escalator on booze, that kind of stuff, that's where there's some profit available. That's not currently part of the reality uh final word to you chef before we say goodbye yeah i guess you know i, I you know and, and whatever intervention or whatever you know levers that could be pulled that can make it a little bit easier for the industry i think obviously you know i'd support and and, and you know it's the type of thing that we all need to, to pitch in uh that you know to do our best to make you know to make these part you know I, what i think is not only is it a strong economic driver and a strong economic uh, you know, cog in the wheel. Um, you know, again, I think you know, particularly small restaurants and community restaurants, they're they're, they're the fabric of of places. You know, they're, they're gathering places. They're places where people get engaged. They're places where people get married. They're places where people gather. You know, after the loss of a loved one. They're, you know, it's a very it's a, it can be a very intimate space and it's a very important sort of fabric of the way people live and interact with each other. And and you know, I think it's important that people appreciate that. You know, look, restaurateurs have been bending over and kissing their own for the last three years, doing everything that we can to pull everything together in a way that would just survivable with, you know, everything getting thrown at us with the kitchen sink. And I think it's important that, you know, the customers and the, the, the governments and the banks and everyone else realizes that it's not business as usual for us. And, you know, like the, the, the whole landscape, the whole playing field has changed. And we can't be the only ones that adjust. And I think that, you know, uh, that is what it feels like. It feels like, the, you know, people who are on the front line are having to make all the tweaks and, and turns. Um, but, you know, the, the, everyone that we deal with is basically acting as if everything is as it was before. And it wasn't great before. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but, you know, who in their right mind will go to work to try to earn 50, you know, generate $150,000 in sales the way that it takes a restaurant? To generate $150,000 in sales to walk away at the end of it with 75 bucks. I mean, you can go down the street and set up a lemonade stand and generate $75. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging and uh, I think it's just important for people to realize how actually dire it is for, for the industry at large. Um, and, you know, if we lose that small, medium, 
family restaurant across the country, then we're losing a big part of what makes our, our cities and our towns uh, work. Uh, very quickly, this is on behalf of a listener, and it's a food-related question, not a profit-related question. Is it okay to boil lobsters with the elastics on the claws? <laughs> That's, a, that's an argument. People can argue that. I mean, you preferably take them out. I appreciate the it's time, your stuff. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Uh, and I knew that would get laugh because I've heard that debate in the past. Okay, let's take a break right on time. When we come back, there's a caller there would like to respond to what we heard from the conservative member, Just Raj Hallen, about the economy, inflation, and prices, and climate change, and all the rest of it, right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Charlie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I got to, uh, I got to end it to you this morning in, in spades. Uh-oh. You, you, uh, anybody who calls you PC Patty, uh, which, which years ago that used to be your name, if you, I you suppose you've heard that before. Uh, I've been called they, everything. They, they, they'd better think twice. You, uh, you handle that guy or you ask uh, the hard questions, uh, and, and, uh, I, I thought you put him on the spot, and I didn't think he answered you very well in a, in a couple of cases. But anyway, it seems like what what he was saying there was what the, what what the conservatives would do would be full speed ahead and damn the torpedoes. It seems like all all the concern with his uh, growth, which which has been the mantra for for uh, a century or more, and uh, they talk about technology solving climate change, and there's nothing really new with what he said. Uh, that's that's. A way of looking at it that that that, that puts things off and uh, no answer there, right? Well, I do think anyway. technology plays a role because I think even the liberals think that, given what we saw in the most recent federal budget about clean tax, manuf- uh, clean tech manufacturing, and tax credits for. So I yeah. think you know the unfortunate uh, reality regarding climate change and price on pollution and everything else is that in some corners you say climate change and the only thought that comes to mind is carbon tax, when in fact there's a lot more to it than that, obviously and technology and innovation and carbon capture and storage and all these things, they play a role. So I'd be more curious about exactly what they're talking about. Because, and again, like I said right to Mr. Hallen, I firmly understand the importance of the role of the opposition. But at some point, now that they seem like they're very much aggressively campaigning, and so be it. They can do whatever they see fit with the donations that come in their door. At some point, proposals have to be part of opposing. Right? You know, you got to make that change to tell us what you can or will do, uh, as opposed to tell me what you hate about Trudeau. And that's fine. I mean, there's room for both, but I think we're going to need to hear a little bit more. I think maybe even some staunch conservative supporters, they'd like to have a bit more meat on the bone versus woke and gatekeepers and the like but I mean that's how politics works now right they test drive things in focus groups they find out what buzzwords or what topics are important to their most staunch supporters and they go with it well technology technology I agree with you certainly as, as a role but uh, the message I'm getting from them they want to criticize anything that has any kind of pain and uh, to suggest something that, that uh, is supposed to be the answer and again as you said not, not fleshing it out I just feel it's more, more politicking but anyway uh, I, I'd like to say good job I'd like, I'd like to speak about uh, trees for a minute um, 
you saw what's what's happening, of course, out to Yellowknife and what happened recently in Maui. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had Fort Mac. Uh, the government is planting trees, as opposed to uh, the federal government has proposed a program of two billion trees by, what was it, 1930 or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, 2030, yeah. I'm going to try to tie this in. Uh, what I find is, okay, we'll look at housing as an example. If I want to go out, if I'm a billionaire or a millionaire or i got lots of cash and I want to go out and build the biggest kind of home, the biggest McMansion to outdo somebody else or whatever my reasons, usually they're ego reasons, I can do that. Nobody will stop me. They'll all tell me it's great for the economy. Uh, look at the jobs in the lumber industry. Look at the jobs building in the construction industry. Uh, fill your boots, more or less what the conservative guy said, as I said, full speed ahead. It seems like in our society, when, when they talk about thinking globally, acting uh, locally, I think, I think it's a cliche, but it's one of, one of the better sayings that I think uh, whoever came up with it. They don't think about in terms of uh, where, do, where does all that lumber come from? Trees, for, uh, trees are, 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 are the uh, they're planting um, now in Kuwait and places uh, just to keep the temperature down. Trees are carbon sinks. They take in carbon dioxide. Everybody should know that, and they give off oxygen. And yet, we seem to regard this as an unlimited resource. We talk about cutting cutting down carbon emissions. Well, one of the best ways, of course, is is is, is to stop uh, destroying so much of our forests. Uh, if, if you look at what's destroyed around the globe each year, cut down and burned and whatnot, it's uh, it's 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 an amazing rate, and it can't be sustained. Now, imagine if a government came in and said, "Okay, if you're going to build a house now, you're going to have to look out at." Uh, how much lumber is going in there? Maybe you're going to have to plant a couple of thousand trees to offset that. But this isn't reforestation. Maybe, no, just, just, just before, just one second. Okay. Maybe you're going to have to do, uh, uh, pay extra tax or some, something that would, because two people living, living in a mansion, that just, that just does not affect you. That affects the whole globe. It affects the country. It affects everybody. But nobody seems to want to look at it. Governments aren't going to look at it because they'd be shot, you know, if they, if they ever propose such a thing. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, just so I understand, look, I, I think reforestation is a pretty active part of whether it be the industry, home building and otherwise. But are you saying that governments should tell people how big they can build? Is that what that meant? What I'm saying is nobody is prepared to look at what an individual, we're talking about individual freedom here, and that's, 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 that's a loaded word. Somebody's trying to get in here, and, and, and I, I mean cut off every now and again. Some, we look at freedom as if to say it's freedom to do whatever we, we want in our society. If I have the money, I can, I can build as big a mansion as I want. I'm saying whoever looks at that probably freedom can be uh, 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 detrimental to all of us. And, and I'm saying perhaps somebody should look at, I mean, we look at houses in, that in terms of uh, energy uh, saving and, that, and then there's a certain code. Perhaps size should be a code part of that. Yes, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. These hard measures that we don't take in the Western world, uh, they're coming back to bite us. 
And these larger conversations, nobody seems to want to have, my God, you're going to tell them how, how big their house should be now. You know what I mean? Anyway. Well, I think first world gluttony has uh, come back to bite us in the backside already, to be honest. Yes, it has. Uh, yeah. aff- affluence. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like for people to, to, to get a copy of a book called Affluenza, How It's Killing Us basically. And uh, I just use housing as, 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 as one example. For instance, the materials that go into a house, there's, there's all kinds of things that are environmentally friendly. There's, there's earthen houses. I, I won't get into that. Uh, but we seem to think that money rules the day and growth. And therefore, these decisions that we make individually have nothing to do with anybody else except our own pocketbooks. And I'm saying that is no longer viable in, 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 on the planet today. That's, that's what, the point I'm trying to make, but anyway. Well, Dave makes an interesting point in my headset. Uh, you're talking about how big you can build. Well, they already tell us how small we can build. Yes, yes. Just to, you know, put that out for some additional yes, context. Uh, I appreciate the time, Charlie. Thanks for the call. Okay. Can I make one more point on, on hospitals and food? Quickly. The problem in, in hospitals, anybody who's been in them, and according to, to my wife, is the blandness of food. Uh, they, they do try to offer uh, some, some healthy stuff. But in a hospital, you kind of uh, can't be preaching for telling people to, uh, to uh, watch the food intake and help them in that regard and then be down a couple of floors selling junk food. That's one of the problems is the, the appearance of that. I'm not sure where this is going, but I can understand the dilemma that they face. Schools are much the same thing uh, like that, eh? but anyway. Appreciate the call, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Jeff, you're on the air. Hello, how are you? You're doing okay, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Good. I was calling to uh, speak about the... Uh, recently, we had a uh, story in one of the news about... Uh, one of the airlines, Lynx Airlines, yep. or something, you know, some people got stranded in Montreal and there was not much compensation or whatever for him. Yeah, just to set the stage, so the uh, fellow and his, either his girlfriend, partner, or wife, they went to a Metallica concert in, in Montreal. Their flight got yeah. cancelled. The next option was four days later. They bought tickets to come home. It cost them $1,600, and they were offered 500 in compensation. Yep. Exactly. Anyways, I got a similar sort of story. There was no concert involved. But my two daughters went down to see my middle child, my son, in uh, Boston. He just moved uh, moved away about a month or so ago. And uh, they traveled with Porter Airlines. So the flight going down, they got delayed in on Toronto Island because of thunder and lightning. So they had to stay uh, in Toronto for a night, which was an expense to which we had to incur, which just kind of wasn't, you know, you can't do... There's only so much that they can do, I guess. If they can't fly, they can't fly. It's not safe to fly. So that was fine. Uh, we kind of had to bite the bullet on that. Then they were down there for, I think it was a full week. Uh, yes, it was a full week. Uh, they were stood in the driveway the day they were coming back, uh, waiting for the Uber to show up to take them to the airport. And uh, they get a text from Porter, your flight is canceled. Call this number and we'll rebook you. So they called the number, and they were like literally on the way to the airport, and it, they said it was mechanical or, uh, yeah, mechanical, uh, servo with the plane, whatever, servicing. Anyways, uh, they got down, they uh, called, and they couldn't get them. This was on a Tuesday. They couldn't get them on until Sunday, which was like five days later. And even though they were 
down visiting family and they had a place to stay, the airlines don't necessarily know that. So all they offered was a uh, basically hacked or ticket back. Now, I'm sure you know that you can't book a ticket to go one way, uh, you know, for nowhere near the price of what they offer you when it comes to the five, say $500. Yep. You can't get a one-way ticket to go anywhere for that price. So that was all they were offered, and it was five days later. So, of course, they had to go and arrange for flights to get home because they had commitments here. So they ended up costing like almost tw- the same price we paid for two tickets to go both ways, almost cost the same amount uh, to come one way. And they, 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 you know, basically, the airline said uh, Porter told them, on the, "Yeah, we'll refund half your ticket." <laughs> that was all. Like, like I was just kind of like, it ended up being a one-week trip that you, uh, you know, you kind of didn't account for that kind of money. And I don't know what the airlines even are expected to do, or if they're if they can do, or whatever. But to me, it's kind of like, so this is it. You're just, uh, you know, we can get you on on Sunday to get back home to Newfoundland, like. You know, one my oldest is a teacher, and the other one's in university. So if it was a little bit later in this month, it'd be definitely have no choice but to get out right away. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about additional expenses, whether it be for hotels and meals and another airline ticket on another air carrier, what well, does get factored in? Let's just say I'm a per hour employee working in whatever industry. I miss a week's yeah. work, that's another week's paycheck. That's an expense. Yeah. That, and it's yeah. not your fault. Look, air travel and the passenger bill of rights has got uh, so many holes in it, we don't do enough to hold the airlines to account. Now, air travel is never going to be perfect. There's going to be issues with weather, mechanical problems, and delays for unforeseen reasons, but the airlines have tried to recover as best possible after the pandemic. We saw the numbers. We know the implications. But the the number one problem for me is I did my job. I booked my ticket. I gave you my Mm -hmm. credit card number. And now after that, the onus is on you. I mean, it's not up to me anymore. So yeah. whether it be crewing issues or whatever the case may be, that's your problem. You know how many pilots yeah. you have. You know how many ground crew you have. If you don't have the crew to accommodate all the planes and all the uh, flights that you've sold on your website, then that's your fault, not mine. Yes, exactly. You're selling too many flights. So uh, just one quick uh, add-on to that. So my daughter, the youngest, is going to Montreal with a couple of friends in a week or so. So she's going with this new company, Lynx. So Lynx changed they were they were going for five or six days. Lynx, out of nowhere, changed her flight to make her. Go, they were her, her and her friends were all going to go a day before they were coming back. So I don't know. I mean, obviously the algorithm or whatever, however that works, I have no idea. But so she was going to Montreal for a week, just to, you know, just for getting back to university. Oh, to be oh, to be young again, once, uh, by the way. But anyway, here she was going for a week, and they just out of the blue got a message saying we've changed your flight to go to Montreal and you're going this date and you're even though I don't know I don't know maybe nobody looks at the screen and says oh wait now she got a return ticket she's coming back the next day that's probably no good to them either yeah <laughs> you know with the Airbnb booked and, and different events planned and I don't know what kind of money she spent or whatever but it's just kind of like it's almost like you sometimes you kind of just roll your eyes and go are you serious? Like nobody really. That's that's it. You're just going to change flight to, to five or six, five or six days later, and and there's nothing to it. <laughs> 
And there is something to it. You know, we're not just a number. We're a person with lives on the other end of the airport. Uh, yeah. Jeff, I appreciate yeah. the time this morning. Anything else you'd like to say? No, that's fine. Great. Thanks for, thanks for taking my call. Anytime. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, and as per usual, and fine by me, some people are really quite cross with the fact that we would dare ask anyone specific questions about major league policies on the political front. So be it. And I'll just read a couple of quotes here. So there is a pretty infamous uh, interview where I guess was asked to look at what was going on in this case in the province of Alberta. It happened to be this person's home province. And they were talking about Alberta's carbon tax, right? Their price, their price on pollution. And the quotes are this. I think it's a model on which you could go, on which you could go broader. The Alberta model imposes a price on emissions for companies that don't meet energy efficiency targets. Those companies can also pay that money into a clean energy research fund. Furthermore, it's not a levy, it's a price. And there's a tech fund in which the private sector makes investments. So look, that's what Alberta has done. That's a model that's available. But you know, as I say, we're very open to see the progress on this on a continental basis. And that quote is from then Prime Minister Stephen Harper in an interview on television with Peter Mansbridge. So when we say that sometimes we're talking about simply the politics of issues versus policy, which I've said in the past, I think that's a very clear example. So getting down to what plans look like from any party as the campaign revs up, because obviously, quite clearly, it's on, right? Whether it be indicated by the massive federal cabinet shuffle inside the Liberal government, whether it be the continued support of the NDP with the federal liberals, and yes, the conservatives are absolutely campaigning, and so be it. That's their right. They can do exactly what they see fit. If they want to spend millions of dollars on a television advertising campaign, best kind. But when we talk about policy, far too often we simply talk, talk about the politics and not the actual policy. Let's take a break. When we come back, good time, good time for to have you on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, a couple of people picked up on the politics versus policy conversation, but I think there's, you know, there's lots of examples out there. The hope is that the public conversation just brings us to a place where we get down to what works and forget which party says what because, you know, believe it or not, the party you support doesn't have all the answers. And that's regardless of which party you support. There's no single politician that has all the answers. There's no one individual that has all the answers, especially when we're talking about the most complicated things facing the country. No matter which one you bring forward, there's absolutely going to be a question as to whether or not your party has the answers. I just quoted Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper regarding carbon tax. That's real. I mean, you can just Google that up very easily. It's right there. That's not a. That's not adding to the conversation. The quotes are the quotes. There's video of the conversation, so that's that. Then there's another one I think you're going to hear more about, and I'm looking forward to speaking, whether it be with leaders of all three of the major parties. I suppose we're going to add, add Miss May to the conversation as well, because we just got to get policy figured out. Here's an example. So immigration and its relationship to things like the housing crisis. Look, it's part of it. There is no question. As the population grows, regardless if it's through birth rates here domestically and or people come to the country, people need a place to live. And we've given you the numbers about how many homes have to be built in the next decade to accommodate current population growth. And that does include immigration. 
the federal government and the Minister of Immigration and the Minister of Housing, they both say there's no need to turn away from their forecasted immigration numbers. What is set to be, uh, the target is set is at 500,000 by 2025. There are certainly conversations about whether or not it's time to pump the brakes and or to be more aggressive in building more homes. Part of the issue regarding building more homes is that there's an absolute labor shortage. I mean, don't take my word for it. Take it from the organizations that there are umbrella, umbrella groups representing the skilled trades. We have a labor shortage. A lot of the targeted migrants will be economic migrants, skilled trades, uh, IT, healthcare professionals. So it's all part of it. So I will hear, and I've heard plenty of condemnation already this morning, which is absolutely best kind because it just furthers conversations. And this one is on immigration. In a new story reported just as recently as November last year regarding the targets and what different politicians and what different political parties think about them. The thought here now is that the conservatives think that immigration, or some of them say, not all, because not everybody in every party is the same. Many conservatives are coming to me saying that immigration is the problem. In November of 2022, the immigration critic, the shadow minister of immigration, he's a gentleman named Tom Kimmich. He said he welcomed the plan to drastically increase the number of new arrivals in Canada. His problem was whether or not the government could actually be able to meet its own targets. He went on to quote the fact that the immigration department had 2.6 million applications sitting on their desk waiting to be processed. There was another 1.6 million requests for temporary residents. About 615,000 of those are people seeking permanent residence. So here's a direct quote. Now we're talking about trying to bring in a half a million immigrants. I just don't believe them that they're going to be able to do it. And that's completely unfair for people who are applying and hoping for reasonable timelines to get a yes or no. So no problem with the number, problem with the process. And that's an important shortcoming of the government. You can't set targets without all the required process to be in place, whether it be with adjudicating or evaluating applications, whether it be understanding, acknowledging, and addressing issues regarding housing, health care, daycare, or whatever you want. As the population grows, services have to grow with them for people to feel welcome, to set up shop here, to be an active participant in a safe and civil society. So again, Maybe, just maybe, we'll do a better job in the future of talking more and more policy and politics be damned. You know, I know people are staunch supporters of one party or another, and that is nature of the beast. It's just the way the world works. And democracy is messy, but it's the best form of government that we have. So, you know, policy doesn't always have to be about your favorite party, your favorite politician. It should be about the merit of what they're talking about as opposed to simply trying to rile people up. And that every party does it. Uh, this is not a one side or the other of the spectrum. This is absolutely all-encompassing. Dave, do you want me to take one? Do I know what that is? Okay. All right, let's check in on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And there are still people sending me many requests for some of the disability benefits information that I've been sharing, trying to get, deal with it as fast as possible, and happy to provide the links. And if you have not heard back from me, as I've said in the last couple of days, I will absolutely, absolutely do it as quick as I possibly can. And if you are impatient, which is also fine, if you simply just want to use the Google search bar and say Canada Disability Benefits, the very first page at the top of that search will be the landing page at Canada.ca. And then the second link I've been sending along is a Canada Disabilities Calculator. So you can simply put that into the search bar as well, and you will get the same results that I get. Very top one is a calculator that does not ask for really personalized information, just circumstance, and then it gives you a number. Before we get to the break, 
Interesting uh, conversation, well, I guess it was an interview, conducted with someone in the media with the Federal Minister of the Environment, Stephen Gibo. And that was about the future of oil and oil developments in the country. When we heard that Equinor's Beta Nord project was greenlit by the federal government, it did also come with a comment from the minister saying it's going to be harder in the future to get approvals for these types of projects. Equinor put forward, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 138 emissions mitigation measures, which led to the final green light and release from the environmental assessment. Gibo says that oil is not dead. There's still going to be a need for oil in a net zero world. He offers some very specific numbers about how many billions of barrels of oil we're going to have. Here's a quote from the minister. We're a little over 1 million barrels a day. According to these organizations, we'll be somewhere between 25 million and 30 million barrels a day in a carbon neutral world in 2050. Importantly... He says that there's not going to be any approvals given to places that are not yet experiencing oil production. No approvals will be given to places where there's not already known reserves of oil. And that means that the known reserves of oil here are still on the front burner and still face the potential to be greenlit by the environment minister. Now, if the government changes hands, I think policy regarding fossil fuels is going to change dramatically. But even in this province, with worries about whether or not there's going to be any oil, more oil developed, and for some people you'll be happy enough if it doesn't, but the biggest contributor to the provincial coffers for quite a long time now has come from that industry, with warts and all. So what Gibo said yesterday, if you are a participant, a worker, directly or indirectly employed by the oil and gas industry, gas, I should, I should add that, but we don't do any gas work here, the known reserves off our shores are still in play, so says the minister. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. The topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to a former St. John's Poet Laureate. That's George Murray. Good morning, George. You're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Doing great this morning. How about you? Well, all good. I'm actually downtown, so with the birds and the crows in the gulf, so in case you hear anything. Life is good. Mm. So the city of St. John's is now currently looking for the next Poet Laureate. I think there's probably a lot of misunderstanding about what the Poet Laureate of a city actually does or what the role will be. So give us the brass tacks about what role was performed by you when you were the Poet Laureate. Well, it's really an outreach and advocacy role. So the the idea is to keep uh, to be an ambassador for literature in general, uh, but the arts in general as well. So sometimes you're asked to uh, open an event with a poem. Um, in my experience, I always chose something by one of the greats from Newfoundland, like Al Pittman or Tom Daw, something like that. Uh, use that to open a, an event. Uh, sometimes they're uh, going into schools and talking to kids about literature and poetry and reminding them that it isn't all, you know, doom and gloom uh, and have a little fun with it in that way. And, and general outreach to the public uh, to sort of try to better the fortunes of poetry. So many other cultures, I mean, Newfoundland is a very, you know, poetic place. It's a place that loves story. It's a place that loves words. It loves wordplay. So it's, we, we poets have it a little better here than in most other places. But, and we have some of the best poets in Canada living in this city. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, a, it is an art form that has sort of slipped off the public radar as education systems have moved more towards what they call STEM, right? The, uh, the tech and engineering and sciences and maths and so forth. 
So, uh, you know, part of that role is to just bring that back to the joy of using our words to express ourselves and, and find deeper meaning. You wouldn't think that poetry would have fallen too far off the map, given the fact that we pride ourselves in being storytellers. You can tell, tell a story, uh, whether it be through traditional prose or through a poem. So how do you reinstate that love of or adherence to poetry? Because it's not that far from how we tell stories in a normal so-called traditional fashion. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, for me, it's really about uh, reminding people that any distaste that they probably developed for poetry over the years had to do with how it was taught in school rather than the poetry itself. So the kinds of things that we, we make people study and we, we tell them, you've got to look for deeper meaning and you've got to find this and you've got to find that. And it just becomes a chore. Uh, I try to take poetry back to its roots of, you know, it is something that uh, it used to be. I mean, poetry used to be the evil news people would go from town to town and recite epics that you know or, or tell the story of so-and-so and you know and those kinds of things nowadays poetry um you know people think that they don't get it and really there's a way of reading poetry that it, that works a little better you read it once for the pleasure of hearing the words come out of your mouth you read it a second time to try to understand what the story is, and you read it a third time to see if there's any d- deeper levels of meaning. And if you don't get it, leave it alone. Go on to the next one. I try to make it a little bit more easy and approachable in that regard. Yeah, and that's the next question. How do you make it more accessible? Because people will possibly view poetry as ivory tower, the hoity-toity and their attention to the glory, the glamour of poetry, as opposed to the fact that it has been part and parcel with the literary arts forever. Yeah, I've been. T- I, I've, I took up teaching poetry online during the pandemic, and uh, what I do is I teach it like a skilled trade. So in the same way that a carpenter, you know, somebody goes to carpentry school, you know, and they learn to nail two boards together and cut a right angle and so forth, well... You, you do the same with poetry. It's a bunch of different little tools. It's nothing mystical. We put poems together the same way that a watchmaker puts together a watch with gears and cogs and so forth. And if you know what those different tools are, you can actually start to build poetry. And you don't even, even if you don't want to read it or even if you don't want to write it, you can use these tools to understand, to take poetry apart and look at it the way a watchmaker would take apart a watch and lay all the pieces out on the table and look at it. And once you understand what those tools are that are, you know, not these, you know, what, what's the deeper meaning, when you understand what the practical tools are, uh, the hammers, the saws, the vices and grips and so forth of poetry, you can actually understand what you're reading a little better. Poetry is not just one thing either, right? It can be even in the form of a schoolyard limerick (laughs) or a sonnet or an ode or whatever the case may be. So give us a better understanding because it's not just all about specific rhyming patterns. It can be something as easy as a, a, a limerick or a haiku. Yeah, you're looking at, um, you know, and funny, we did on uh, VOCM many years ago when I was a poet laureate, we did a, a haiku contest about uh, right. about snow clearing, and uh, it was super popular. We had entries from all over, uh, and it's fantastic because everyone understood what a haiku was because we taught those tools back in school. We said it's, you know, 17 syllables, five, seven, five. People understood it and got it. When you get into the more complex forms, it gets a little more arcane, a little bit more hard to understand, a little bit more difficult, like a, the difference between a regular crossword and a cryptic crossword, you know? But the uh, again, like I said, a carpenter, people who go to carpenter school, some of them go off and frame houses, others go off and become fine cabinet makers. 
it doesn't mean they're not all not woodworkers, right? So we can we can do the same with poetry. We have people who are telling little stories uh, in basically prose with line breaks in it, and other people who are doing these arcane rhyming forms with meter and so forth. Even our city councilor Maggie Burton just published a book of poetry uh, recently that is, is is mostly little stories about life, uh, and it's very accessible. Those kinds of things, and we have that poetic impulse all through our population. I think Newfoundland could be the highest per capita in the world of people, at least with the poetic impulse. Uh, can you regale us with one of your favorite snow clearing haikus? Oh, I, I can't. I couldn't remember them, but there was um, there were a couple that were uh, that were super super clever uh, way back in the Twitter feed. I guess you'd have to look or X or whatever it's called now. But uh, the uh, you know it, they were they were really. I mean, it, it, you know, when you put out something like that and you see the number of people who respond, you think to yourself, how come more people aren't writing poetry or at least reading poetry because they seem to be very good at it. Absolutely. And uh, last one, and this one maybe sounds like a silly question, but I'm going to do it. Anyway, you know, is it mandatory in a poem for it to have the traditional rhyming pattern? Not at all, no. And, and a lot of that faded away post-Victorian era. Uh, and if you studied in school, uh, you probably studied a lot of poetry that didn't rhyme and so forth. There are people who use the rhyme and the meter. They cling to it because it provides them with structure that they, they can expect. And they, they, they know when, you know, when you say roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet and... So are you, right? You we get our little we get our little completion, right? So people love that, but poetry can be anything. Uh, I will give you one. A meter was the, the phrase, the word I was looking for. Thanks for that. So in the roses are red. When I was living in Jasper in a dormitory style room, I uh, my roommate was just uh, had a new girlfriend, and my girlfriend wrote her a Valentine's Day roses are red poem, and it went like this: Roses are red, violets are blue. The boys come first, then sports, then you. I'll never, I'll never forget it. <laughs> Perfect. Genius. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Thank you, George. Appreciate your time. Oh, yeah, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, imagine. That was what she wrote on the Valentine's card. Rose are red, violets are blue. The boys come first, then sports, then you. Oh, man. Uh, will I take a break on time and come back with Mr. Lane, David? Okay, let's do exactly that. So the city is actually looking for a, a new poet laureate at this moment. I don't think that role has been satisfied. If you think you can and would be a good one, then just connect with the city and do exactly that. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Mark Lane's in the queue. He's the director of Impact, Rural Newfoundland and Labrador for the North Pine Foundation. We'll find out more about that group right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the director of Impact Rural Newfoundland and Labrador for the North Pine Foundation. That's Mark Lane. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Long time, no talk. It has been. How long have you been in this role? Uh, when I left the industry for aquaculture, that was back in uh, December 2021. So going on two years now. I have no earthly idea what the North Pine Foundation is. What do you do? So we basically we're a startup uh, venture philanthropic organization. So what I mean by that is that we are not your traditional philanthropy organization or typical foundation. We focus on outcome-centered innovation. And what I mean by that is that we identify issues, and there's many, as you know, uh, all too well in rural Newfoundland and Labrador and otherwise. And if you look at the social determinants of health, just for example, we perform, you know, abhorrently terrible in, in most so this foundation is founded by Mr. John and Kathy Phillips from Scarborough, who fell in love with Newfoundland a number of years ago, and they've given me and, and several other individuals across Canada 
uh, through their generosity to invest in uh, five different portfolios. So I, I, as you said, as the impact director for rural Newfoundland and Labrador, we also have an impact director for environment and climate change, formerly incarcerated persons, refugees and newcomers, and then one other geographically specific for Scarborough, of course, because that's where John and Kathy live. And basically, we take, as a non-traditional sense, we just don't hand out money. Uh, what well, we do and we don't, I guess. What we do is we actually look for problems or challenges in society, uh, social and economic challenges. And then we work with the people who lose sleep over overnight. And we kind of work with, you know, with, the, with the end beneficiary lens and then reverse engineer a solution. So we take all the traditional, say, financial instruments of a venture capitalist, so loans, grants, donations, equity, or blended financing, but we apply it through a socio-economic lens with no expectation of monetary return on investment most times. We are focused on social return. So well, give, us an, for, give me an example because, you know, socioeconomic development is means one thing to me, maybe something else to you. So give us an example of a project that you're involved with. Perfect. So we announced today. Uh, so this is the latest one. So to date, uh, I've invested through through North Pine over just over, I think, $8 million in the last 18 months. Uh, getting better at it because I wasn't always an impact investor, so I would consider myself now an impact investor. So the, the announcement we made today, for example, so as you know uh, and many others, so there's 45, so there's 20% of the population in in Canada and across the province of Newfoundland identify as having a disability. Over 45% of those are unemployed. If you look at, for example, the tech sector, which you know it's, it's up and coming in Newfoundland and Labrador with the success of, of many organizations, not just Verifin, of course, uh, but there's over 2,000 jobs estimated uh, through TechNL's website uh, in the next five years. So I've partnered uh, and invested in a private company called Get Coding. And they've had a tremendous success. So it's your non-traditional type of education. It's not university or, or um, uh, trade schools. Basically, they use a mentorship type style. And they'll go to a Verifin or a World or some other tech company, and they'll, if you're interested in learning to become a software developer, it'll be done through mentorship. And they've had a 96 employment success rate on the outcome. So what I've done is I've worked with them on a performance-based contract. So every 20 people they take into a cohort of people with disabilities from rural Newfoundland and Labrador, because we've got all this talent out there that that are uh, are, are um, forgotten, I guess, or underinvested in terms of a labor force. And so I believe uh, with uh, you know Jan, who's the owner of Get Coding, that we can actually prove my hypothesis and his that we can actually get uh, individuals with persons with disabilities living in rural Newfoundland and Labrador working in the tech space, right? So it's kind of marrying the two. Um, that's just one example. Others would be included, for example, working on now in terms of reduction of diabetes. So can we actually prove that we can actually reduce diabetes? So it's not just throwing money at a, at a, at a outcome of diabetes, but it's it's actual investing in the preventative care. Um, another example would be just recently we invested, uh, for example, Crescent, um, Smallwood Crescent, a, a community center in Marystown. And so I reached out to Daryl Jackman, who's a transformative leader. He works in the community. He knows the community, and we we're having a discussion, and he told me that uh, he has the highest rate or one of the highest rates of high school dropouts in the province. And of 31 people, I think it's like 16 people all have already dropped out. So we invested $200,000, for example, to actually prove his concept that he can get people back in school. So it's not just kind of throwing money at the problem. We're very focused on the actual outcomes of the investment. So like traditional investors, 
uh, we expect outcome, but it's not a monetary return. It's actually a social return on our investment. Before I get back to returns, when we talk about, you know, seeing the ability in disability and opportunities in the tech sector in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, how do you marry that concept, which makes all the sense in the world to me, with connectivity? Because you can't have one without the other. Oh, absolutely. That's another. That's, that's obviously a big challenge as well. We're, we're getting better at it. You know, I just saw another $10 million invested into the Nazi territory yesterday. Uh, so we're getting better at connectivity. It's certainly a challenge, uh, and we'll address that. We actually identify that as one of the risks, and we've have, we have protocols that we're going to mitigate that with. So participants will be selected on some form of broadband connectivity, of course, because uh, they're going to have to do you're going to have to do this over Zoom or some other type of platform. Uh, but you know, I, I think personally that. You know, 20% of the population uh, in this province having identified as a disability and almost 50% of those unemployed uh, at no fault of their own just because of inaccessibility, either physically accessible buildings, et cetera, or just no attachment historically to the labor force. And I think that we can actually prove this concept and then we can scale it. So then we can pick another industry and make another investment and see if we can get more people. My goal personally is to get 10,000 people over the next 10 years with disability uh, out of poverty and into the workforce like myself and you. What are you doing regarding food, access to food, food security or insecurity issues in rural? Because that's a problem. You know, might be issues like simply proximity to options. You know, having to make the long trek into the Costco's of the world, whether that be, you know, Walmart and Marystown or the Costco in Galway, proximity becomes a problem. So what are you doing on the foods, uh, the food side? Uh, currently invested almost two million, and so we don't fund traditional food banks, although that's absolutely necessary. But we're actually investing in the redeveloping the Newfoundland and Labrador food system, food delivery system. So Josh, me, as you well know from Food First, we invested almost a million dollars in the Food First to actually create what they call the Western Food Hub. So he's got a partnership of choices for you. People can go online; they can order local produce. That local produce is delivered to a central location. Choices for youth will pick the orders, and then you can pick them up at various. So we're actually his contract is he gets you know a certain amount of money up front, and then every other community or group of communities that he can add to this food hub, the sustainable food hub, he gets a performance you know bonus basically on that right in the form of a grant. So we're actually doing that. Which is, I also just invested, which is not really released yet, so I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag. Uh, next week, uh, you'll also get a news, news release related to a private company, which will remain nameless at the moment, but it's kind of the opposite. It's going to complement what Josh is doing. So we've invested a half a million dollars there. What he's doing, he's actually taking – he's an able order food from Costco, basically, and other – you know, main outlets, Coleman's or whomever, uh, he picks, he gets the orders, he picks it up, uh, him and his parts, they deliver it using the DRL bus system. So there's no additional carbon footprint. And because there's some vacant air, uh, space on that um, trunk line, yeah, the big he's club. using... Yeah, so he's, he's using that to bring it out, say, to the top of the Beta Spear Highway or to the top of the Buren Peninsula. And then his partnerships with these local, you know, buy the boot or the taxi companies, the, the, you know, that go back and forth. And then they'll pick it up at the at the TransCanada and bring it down to the Mary's Towns and to the Burens and to the, uh, you know, Mill Towns and the St. Albans and Harbor Breton. So we're working on redeveloping the entire food system and we're trying small components bit by bit. So we've invested almost, I think, $2 million or maybe about two. I think, but in the next week. Okay. And actually, another one working actually, this is interesting, is a vertical grow. So taking a, a used 40 foot container, 
employing persons with disabilities to actually grow food in the container in a rural area of Newfoundland. They have a partnership with a local college whereby the excess heat will actually help heat the college itself. So we're doing all kinds of different things, and we're open uh, for business all the time. So anyone who has ideas, they should definitely go to the northpinefoundation.ca, and up in the right-hand corner says uh, submit your venture idea or submit your idea. And uh, we have a rolling intake. And, uh, again, we deployed almost, I think, uh, just over 70 million last year. I've deployed probably 8 to 9 million since I've joined, and we maintain it in our portfolio. So it's not just a one-time shot of uh, money and I just we disappear we work with the clients we, we work with the investees and bring in this other national support network to make sure that we can do everything for them to succeed when we talk about that amount of money going out the door there will be naturally some skeptics because when people don't have a required return on investment people wonder where's the money come from where's the strings <laughs> attached so are the couple you mentioned from Scarborough the sole financiers of this foundation Yes, sir. Yeah, they're they are. they are, they're the most generous people I know. Yeah, they uh, they I asked them. I said, "Why Newfoundland?" And they told me because their heart lies there. So they have a house here. They they spend their winters in Newfoundland, um, and they they visit frequently. They have lots of friends and colleagues here. They've invested here in the past and other things. But I mean, they're two of the most generous people I've ever met. Well, obviously, if seventy million dollars out the door with no strings attached, no required ROI is. Uncommon, even in the most philanthropic uh, cir- uh, circles. It is. We're different. We're, we're. I guess we're a disruptor, Patty. We're like. We're like the. You know, Uber to a taxi. I guess we're like the, that venture philanthropist to a traditional philanthropy. And we're. We're more people are. It's. It's gaining traction. So impact investing or social finance. You know. All too long, we've been throwing money at problems and not getting the results. You know, we had the most expensive healthcare system with the worst results in Canada. We can't continue to do it. So, for example, we're looking at, you know, how is it we can actually reduce diabetes? How do we actually get people eating healthier? How do we get people to be more physically active? And one of the investments I'm pretty confident will come to fruition in my pipeline is just that. So can we actually make a community healthier? And we're going to show it statistically, uh, third-party validated that we can do it. And if we can do it in one community, we can do it in two, three, five, ten, twenty. Because we need to do it. Well, and I think Canadians are coming around to the fact that money is not the be-all, end-all when it comes to health care. The whole system hasn't really been rejigged, whether it be from a human resources or a logistics issue, for decades. And that chicken has come home to roost. I appreciate the time, Mark, and the information about the North Pine Foundation. Yeah, and I, if I can take one more minute, Patty. Sure. So your, the previous caller had a poem, and, I, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a poet, but I use chat GPT, so I full admit it. But here, here's, here's, a, here's a poem I wrote about North Pine with using artificial intelligence and, while we were just chatting. Okay. In North Pine's embrace, pineless blooms, foundation's heart, a world resumes. Roses are red, their actions pure, philanthropy's touch, and impact sure. AI is going to be the death of us. It could be. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm glad I didn't have it in the high school and other places. But I mean, uh, yeah, I think uh, people are becoming much too reliant on it. It's a good tool. I use it as a springboard into something else. But uh, uh, yeah, same breath. I appreciate the time story, Mark. Thanks a lot. Anytime, buddy. Take care, buddy. All right, you too. Bye bye. All right, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the disability benefit and looking for that long term care review because, as we spoke about earlier this morning, some of the shortcomings in the healthcare setting in private care, pardon me, personal care homes, long term care facilities, it has an implication with hospital admissions as well. We'll talk about that and everything else under the sun right after this. Don't go away. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Margaret. You're on the air. For the number for this disability you're talking about. Sure. By chance, do you use the Internet as well, Margaret? Okay. Do you? No. Okay, because that really, I think, streamlines and makes it a little bit easier for folks. But I will try to find that number that I gave a gentleman just yesterday, if I remember correctly. Uh, da, 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 da. How about this? What I'm going to have to do, though, because I don't have it right in front of me, but I can find it in short order. It, would it be okay with you if I put you on hold and I give it to David and he can pass it along to you? Yes. Okay, let's do Thank that. Thank you very much. You're welcome, ma'am. Good luck. Uh, so I'll get that number quickly here, David. Uh, let's see. Let's continue on. Go to line number three. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. No Please. problem at all. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, long-term care. The uh, uh, that's been in the news with a number of people who are who are in the emergency wards who probably shouldn't be there, probably should be in long-term care. Uh, a little bit about aging at home, and I think there's an announcement taking place now about the surgical backlog. And I'll start with this. A year ago, less than a year ago, I was speaking to a doctor who worked at St. Clair's, and we you know, got into the whole topic of whether St. Clair's is needed or not. But one comment that struck me. He said, if you want to increase or get rid of the surgical backlog, he said, at that time, he said, what you need to do, there are p- patients, there are people occupying acute care beds who should be in long-term care bed facilities, but those beds are closed because they don't have access or, or don't have the staff to, uh, to house them, so therefore, or to take care of them. So they're in, they're, as a result, they're in uh, hospitals, and that's, uh, that's slowing down. That's basically creating a backlog. But that was one thing that, that, uh, that this doctor, this specialist, has told me that, uh, that, that stuck out with me. So, in that, um, I, I, I have I've spoken to the unions who uh, have uh, uh, workers in in the um, in these long-term care facilities. And one thing that they point out, there's a simple fix here in some ways. In that, there was a program at one time, certainly, uh, to train train up those within the system who were who started out in entry level jobs, and could probably train up to do the more, I guess, the the jobs with the, uh, more responsibility or greater demands. And then there is an option then of people with uh, with minimal training moving into the entry level jobs. That was discontinued, or it has been in place. But there is a, a way, uh, you know, it probably take it, it's probably a quicker fix than waiting, you know, training up doctors for four years down the road or five years down the road and so on and so forth but that's one measure right there that 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 i I, that we could be uh, looking at how do we make sure that people who are in need of long-term care actually are able to access the beds you have been speaking to people on this um, on this uh, on your show, and I know they've been we've been working with them to try to get long-term care and home care uh, so that people can age in place and, and, and keep them out of long-term care, long-term care facilities and maybe in their home and out of the hospitals. But that's increasingly difficult as well. So I think here, in many ways, when we're looking at ways, ways of, uh, of making sure that people who uh, need the care, whether it's long-term care at home or at home, that what are the resources we are putting in place here, so that they're not depending on the uh, on the emergency uh, award, which is already uh, traumatic enough. I'll tell you as well, uh, you know, one of the, uh, from our own uh, a tip, 
of uh, information that between uh, between 2018 and 2022, there are over 21,000 visits to the emergency ward for dental and gum-related issues. Again, uh, I'm thinking in terms of if, if the province were looking at trying to free up the emergency wards for what, what is needed, there are ways of taking care, taking, bringing in a dental program that could keep these people who are in need of basic care out of there. So I, I guess my, my message here is there's a proactive way to handle this, uh, and there are solutions there. Uh, otherwise, it's just, to me, horrendous that someone, a loved one, is uh, uh, maybe with dementia or who should be in uh, long-term care is, is left waiting in an emergency room. I, I, I would be heartbreaking for me. Uh, no question. Uh, the stories as being told by doctors themselves, as quoted in the news story from Sarah Smuddy this morning, are really staggering, startling, or I don't know what the right word is, but if there's somewhere on any given day, 30% of the ER beds are occupied by people that do not need to be in the emergency room, but they have no other option, that's where we think that the, you know, when people say things are broken, that's indicative of a broken system. For me, like, we used to hear stories not that long ago where nurses being recruited or nurses graduating here were offered jobs first in long-term care as opposed to where they wanted to work. And I guess, and I, I could be oversimplifying this, but if we get it right in long-term care, that goes a long way throughout the system because it would deal with freeing up beds inside the hospital, which would further uh, deal with the backlog of surgeries and all the rest, and the issues regarding the required staff and the appropriate training for whether it be a cognitive disability or a mobility issue inside of long-term care, we have the staff to take care of it because now they're just running around trying to take care of as many people as they can, dealing with the very basics as opposed to the kind of work that they want to be doing in that type of setting. So this story about the ER, and community emergencies and social admissions. That's not how the hospital system is created. It's not supposed to be. It was never meant. It was never meant if you've gone there, I, I had been in the, like, for, you know, for it's, uh, it's, when I lost the tip of my finger at one time. They respond, you know, to an emergency, I guess, when, when there's, and, and it works effectively, but not this way. I will say, and you had Lisa Marsh on your show many times, and she's been very what what she's trying to do to keep her her sister housed in uh, in her own home and out of long term care, and making sure that they keep it, uh, aging in place, if that's the best way to do it uh, to to talk about it. So you're right there, Patty. In terms of uh, when I look at the the solution, let's start at the uh, let's start at the uh, the basic care, keeping people in their homes, keeping them out of long term care, and making sure that those uh, long term care facilities have the staff. Start with the. Let's look at the, the at the entry level. What do we need to do to keep beds open? Uh, and then it starts. Uh, I guess we can start taking it care of itself. My my fear is that if we you know if we're going about building new hospitals, if we're not addressing the fact that we need long term care, of, uh, the, the, the take care of the uh, the human resource piece, we're going to this problem is not going to get any better. But I still go back to what the doctor told me. You know, and the, this especially said, look, you want to free, you want to get rid of the surgical backlog that was at St. Clair's uh, free up the beds and uh, and 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 have these uh, and have the long-term care beds open uh, in the here in the city that that need to be open. Otherwise, what I what I've been dealing with is is loved ones in some cases who've watched their uh, their their elderly uh, parent or sister or uh, a relative uh, being pushed uh, uh, being moved to an, a facility an hour and a half away, which means that they cannot participate in the care of that individual. 
And I think what we're seeing here now is sort of the culmination. I guess the chickens have come home to roost in many ways, uh, and we've got a crisis in our hand where uh, where, where the emergency war, emergency uh, doc, uh, personnel are trying to deal with issues that are clearly not emergencies, but where else do they go? And I, I think we start with the, like start with how to fix the long-term care facility problem and make sure that people can age actually age at home. And I think we can start the, we can start to take care of some of the, the bigger issues around uh, the emergency wards and surgeries. Yeah, I mean even some of the steps that the government has taken for trying to deal with surgical backlogs, like the. Uh, expanding services for hip and uh, knee replacements in St. Anthony, now in Carbonair. The, the only thing with that is that even the surgeons themselves say it's just not going to deal with the backlog. The backlog is going to continue to grow given the numbers of people who need these types of procedures. A friend of mine living in St. John's flew to St. Anthony for the surgery. I mean, there's something that just doesn't really make a lot of sense with that. I get the concept of trying to, you know, spread around the procedure's ability to different pockets of the province for folks who live there, as opposed to someone in St. John's who lives a stone's throw from the health sciences, got their knee replaced in St. Anthony. There's, uh, I'm not so sure that's very cost-effective and or uh, overall effectiveness of that play. Uh, anything else quickly, Jim, before we say goodbye this morning? No, I'm just, I, I think in many ways, when you, when you look at the person who's trying to have that surgery, that's their quality of life, but I agree with you, Patty, there, uh, there are ways in, in which this can be, uh, rather than, uh, it, to me, flying them here, uh, here, there, and everywhere is a stopgap measure. The, it comes down to taking care of the, uh, the, the starting with the ground, at the ground level, which is, how do we make, we are an aging population. Recognize that. How do we deal with that? How do we make sure that people age in place and that they have long-term care for facilities that it can address those needs. Appreciate the time. Take care. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Jim Din is the NDP member for St. John's Centre and a leader of the party provincially. Let's take our final break of the morning. Barry, you're next. He's out in Carbonair. He'll tell us about his concern right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. How you doing today, sir? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, not bad. I'm calling in today in regards to uh, water and sewer um, uh, for our street, uh, money was allotted uh, for water and sewer last fall, and so I was in talks with the uh, the town and the uh, and um, very helpful mayor in regards to this. And um, the uh, information that I found out uh, this spring is that uh, they received the money last fall. And uh, it's the same as every other roadworks and uh, water and sewer project that would go for tenders and stuff like that. And so the spring, um, uh, you know, the rest went out and ours didn't. And uh, I can't, I still can't get an answer to why it didn't. And um, so um, it was probably about three weeks, month ago. It only went out for engineering work, is what I've been told, and I I don't have any evidence to that. Only just uh, words regurgitated to me um, that um, it went out for engineering, and so I inquired on it today because you know it's taken quite some time, and the fall is coming up, and you know as we approach the fall, then there's less chance of getting that work done, and we had a summer wasted. Um, and two of the roads that were done, so our road comes out into a T, we'll call it. We're at the bottom of the T, and the top of the T is uh, is a road that runs along us. And um, so they dug up the road at the top of the T, 
uh, last fall, and they've been doing uh, digging it up, uh, redigging it up again this year, uh, which is right at the very end of our road. So we're figuring, okay, so you know they're digging that up rather than throw good money at bad money and have to do it over twice while well, you got it open. Just, you know, it was a good opportunity now to do the the water and sewer in our road and um, and get that fixed. Knowledge there from the town that there's a problem there and uh, get it fixed. And um, you know, you wouldn't have to spend the money twice to to have it done. And it's not a big distance where they got to fix it. And it's probably uh, a few hundred feet in, and um, and then the job is done. So for some unforeseen reason, the town has been dragging their heels with that road. And two roads that were dug up last year, one is a long road, and that one's completely dug up again now and being redone. And ours hasn't been touched. Um, Very frustrating to be told by the town of Carboneer itself um, that... um, you know the uh, the head over the town of uh, Carboneer that works inside the office that um, it was going to be done since the spring, and here we're coming into the fall and not a thing done yet. Uh, it's very frustrating, and knowing that there's a problem there, um, we can't we can't move forward with where uh, we were planning on down the road in the future when we bought the house to sell our house. So now. In selling our house, the town of Carabineer is not going to take the responsibility where the um, where there's an issue there, and and um, whatever we lose on the sale of house, because we've got to be upfront and honest to whoever that there's still an issue in the road. The town is planning on fixing it. You know, if say if you could get three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand for your house, you're lucky if you get over a hundred thousand for it. So we're we're caught in a rock and hard place. We had planned on selling our house this year, and uh, we had told the town that this spring, and uh, we wanted the issue dealt with, uh, you know, along with the rest of the neighbors. And um, for some unforeseen reason, uh, they have the money, and they're still, it's, it's still being sat on. Was there a justification offered as to why there was a disconnect between doing it all the one time? Yeah, no, never ever got an answer, first or last, why it wasn't being done, other than the engineering and stuff wasn't done. But yet I got an answer that the engineer, you know, that it went out. I had an answer that it was gone out to the engineering spring. Then I found out, no, it wasn't gone out to the engineering spring. And then I got an answer back probably about a month ago that it's finally gone out to the engineering and that um, they're doing the um, work on that to get ready for Tenders and uh, from the municipal officer who was here to handle it before. So, I just an answer from the town that is not going to be done until spring now. So, but it is scheduled to be done in the spring coming. Yeah, but I mean, all the work that that you know that should have been put in for tenders this spring, same as the rest of the work. Oh, I understand. Yeah, and so they didn't do that for some unforeseen reason. Someone within the town sat on that job and didn't put it out, and and they were and it was all summer of someone dragging their heels, not wanting to get that work done. I don't know why. I have no idea why. I can't put a reason on it, but they're you know with um, 
knowing that it was not put out since the spring. It should have been put out shortly after the rest was done too as well. And uh, it didn't get put out. And, you know, that's someone's fault. So you would call it negligence on someone's behalf of not going ahead and getting that put out to tenders or getting it put out to engineering and then tenders. And uh, this is where we're to right now that is only in the engineering. And, and you know, if I've been told different stories since the spring, can you believe that that's even uh, the case today? Which obviously will come with, I would think, uh, additional financial considerations too when you do work in one area that could have been done with the same dig versus uh, two separate springs. Yeah, so the, the, that was my point this spring. Why don't you get at it now, and why don't you, you know, uh, see if you can get it out to tenders, and and uh, maybe, um, uh, you know, the companies around will bid on it now, and while it's open, it's a good opportunity. And if that company that, that, that is there doing the work gets the, you know, uh, winning bid, well, then wouldn't it be uh, um, a lot less... Uh, financial burden on the town of Carabineer if you don't have dig that spot up twice. Sounds about right. Uh, Barry, we're almost out of time. Final thoughts to you, sir, before we say goodbye. My my thought is is that we're dealing with, and we have been in the past, a dysfunctional um, town council. They make um, regulations. They don't stick to them. They make dead things on the fly, and they do things the way they want to do it. It's kind of a bullish um, uh, situation that I've been in. Uh, you know, I'm a former shop store of the labor union, so I've seen a lot of bullish things happen, and it's, it, it reminds me of what I dealt with in the past. Barry, you've had the last word. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks. Take good care. Bye bye. All right, there you go. Yeah, sometimes uh, public works is confusing, to say the very least. All right, good show today, and big thanks for everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.